Welcome to Following the Leftovers, the officially unofficial podcast for The Leftovers on HBO. I'm Jim. And I'm Aaron. And we're here today to talk about the season three uh, wrap-up and, you know, by extension, the series wrap-up. Uh, I, I always start these things with, what'd you think? What'd you think of season three? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought it was awesome. I want to... I want to, as the steel two and B's words from the Netherlands, um, because number one, it was an awesome email, and two, uh, their name sounds like two one B, the surgeon droid from Star Wars. So, mm-hmm. uh, no matter what my personal beliefs are, and in that comes down to personal interpretation, which in turn has probably resulted dealing with the loss of something we loved at this show. This is, in my opinion, the most important theme of The Leftovers, and the fact that we are all searching for answers, can't let it go, and can't seem to agree, just like 98% is still blowing my mind. Considering this, the show could not have ended better. And I gotta say, I've seen the show two more times since last time. I guess I've seen it five, maybe six times now. Mm -hmm. And my esteem for it just keeps growing, because I just... After I've read all these interviews with Lindelof and Mimi Leader and the actors and how they managed to do something so kind of on message and in-universe and divisive, but still great, um, I, I, that's just the barrier. The more I think about it, the more the barrier of difficulty seems like it gets higher And the fact that they did it, at least for me, at least seems like for the... The majority of people are coming around to it. There is still, you know, uh, 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 some malcontents out there, which you're always going to have. But hmm. I, for for me personally, um, it, it's it's for sure my favorite show. It, it's hmm. it's and and I and I don't even know that it's not an important show. Like like I said, the, the with the with the, with the wire, like maybe it's more important. Maybe it's got a better chance of changing people's po- politics and affecting more change in the world. But just dealing dealing with grief and and getting used to the idea of how weird and individual we are as humans and like what, like, like losing the idea of what is and isn't proper as far as what you can feel, I think is pretty important too. So Mm -hmm. I love the leftovers. It's my favorite show. What do you think, Jim? Yeah, it's great. Um, (laughs) man, I'm still (laughs) wrestling with that fucking question. You know, what's my favorite show? And I think, uh, well then I I will continue to wrestle with it. I don't, I don't know that I can say for sure whether this is my favorite show or not. I think certainly it's, Overall, it was less entertaining um, than Breaking Bad, but I do agree with your point that maybe it's more um, useful, I'll say, for for people to watch. Uh, Entertainment value aside, I think this is a pretty important show uh, as far as, you know, A, the state state of the art uh, in filmmaking and television uh, creation, I think, is important there. Uh, B, yeah, I mean, it's also this idea of everybody it's something that everybody has to deal with right Mm -hmm. like grief is not something you can escape in life right um and without any kind of tool set to deal with it how do you do it and i feel like the leftovers tries to approach that question like a lot of people who um hadn't really had to deal with a lot of grief i guess Mm -hmm. up until then uh you know suddenly it's thrust upon them and how do they how do they approach it and i think you know, it, it. This is a show that probably could have gone on for like ten seasons, mm. just wrestling with the same topics because I think that's how people are, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, if if you go out in season two, which, well, let's save that. I, I was gonna say is actually better than season three, I think, uh, but only slightly. We'll we'll talk about that maybe in a minute. But if if you go out at season two, 
it almost feels a little artificial in how they how quickly they've come to some satisfactory conclusion about their grief, right? Yeah, and also um, se- extending it to season three makes it feel a little bit more natural and a little more honest to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then saying, "Look, these people didn't even get closure at the end of season uh, at the end of like this seven seven year thing. Um, they had to go ten more years or, right. or fifteen more years. We don't even know uh, before they got anywhere near something approaching." understanding themselves right. and dealing with the grief. So I, I don't know. I think it's a really interesting show. Yeah. And you mentioned the, 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 the dealing with grief, which like has really changed in the last couple hundred years with like the, and quote unquote enlightenment and society becoming overall more secular mm-hmm. and less willing to just believe, you know, what's handed down to them from on high or from, from previous generations. Um, I do because, like, I you know, I I haven't really dealt with the idea of loss um, since I've left lost my own religion, mm-hmm. um, and like I I kind of like deal with it when I do think about it. I try to get some like intellectual kind of like you know uh, I, I guess peace with it, but I I, I right I will, I will part, cop though, right? to <laughs> I will cop to mostly just ignoring it. Sure, yeah. Um, and just like putting, it's like, well, you know, whatever, if you're going to, I'm going to die, whatever, I'm going to die. And what's, what's the point of of thinking about it? Mm -hmm. Uh, and I do feel like that this is, uh, these are, these are important things to ponder. These are, these are great questions. And the fact that you can do it in such a way that like kind of exposes atheists as, as believers and, uh, religious people as skeptics, uh, which, which I found through as a theme throughout when I was reading on Reddit and our feedback, uh, I again, I think it's amazing, and as you said, the state of the art. I kept on thinking as I was watching it, like the final few times, like man, I hear Damon Lindelof talking about uh, you know Twin Peaks, and how just as a as just a fan, he's incredibly geeked out for the few weekends that his show was sharing the evening with this David Lynch work that he's idolized, and he's kind of you know it, it's for, so formative to his thinking and filmmaking. And I'm like, my God. 20 years from now, where are we going to be if the, if people continue to push this envelope and demanding excellence? And, uh, you yeah. know, also the fact that um, the writer's room seemed like it was unusually democratic. Like they would like like Lindelof wouldn't be like, OK, that's a great idea. Break it off. You're responsible for writing this episode. It was almost like writing by committee, which hmm. has a bad rap. You know, if you saw this is written by committee, it's like, oh, it must be shitty. But here you've got like 10, 12 people of, you know, above average intellect and curiosity coming together. And the other thing that came across in a lot of these interviews is they followed their laughter, Mm -hmm. like things that they thought were funny um, were great because it slipped past people's defenses. Like, like if you just, you know, you take an opinion on death and life, then people get like up in arms. But if you come at some crazy screwball terminator style death machine that might take you to another dimension it like disarms people and they think about you know like like first principle type things and like that's just goes so far against conventional wisdom but works so well it's like i you know i always wonder like what is the next what, what's the next evolution in like this golden age of television when is it going to peak and i remember after the first seasons of fargo and true detective like oh man what if the next innovation is going to be the singular voices and visions and they're not going to have a writer's room they're going to tell this this unique perspective and a story and what if that and now i'm thinking like oh man what if it's like actually that's the wrong way to run and and you 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 actually got to run more towards like this this 
have this big diverse writers room that has like you know some kind of comes away some kind of universal truth. I don't I don't know, but well, I, I, mean, I like thinking about it from that perspective too. Yeah, and it, there has to be someone you know who makes the final call, and I think there even in that writers room there certainly was right Lindelof and Perota. But that's um, the, they're, they're they're making the final call, and and it's true. But they and it, I I I don't know if you got the opinion, but like I've had this opinion going into the season, and I come away with that. Lindelof is the man of faith. Parada's the man of science. Sure. Yeah. Like, Parada's the guy that's like... He, in fact, I guess his chief strength was he had veto power in the writer's room where he's like, just no, that's fucking stupid. We're not going to do it. Mm. Um, yeah, whereas Lindel- Lindelof was the guy who was throwing what they've described as grenades. Mm. Uh, also, I But he also had his limits very much. He was like... Uh, somebody would come up with an idea, and he's basically like, no, absolutely not, because I'm right. the guy who has to answer that question for the next 20 fucking right, years. Right, right, like, right, right. what happened to John? Right. I, yeah. Well, I don't want to. I don't ever want to tell you, like, in a Comic-Con panel what happened to John. I want it to be on screen. So I, I'm morally certain that you and I have read the same interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about one that – and I don't have – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the, 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 the biggest interviews in the show notes, the ones that I, I, I curb the most from for my notes – but there's one where Lindelof said that he went from a 95-5% certainty that Lori had committed suicide mm-hmm. to the next episode after discussion of the writer's room 50-50. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I don't remember all the arguments that was summoned against that, but I wondered if you could maybe talk about did that ring true to you? Have you changed? I mean, that that's the big bone of contention for you, right? Like, So yeah. it's like what – have you come to more appreciate the Lori position? Because I've thought about it a lot too. But I didn't change how I thought about it. <laughs> Neither did I, actually. I still don't okay. like it. Um, okay. I I think that episode was very much set up at the 95-5 position. And then he came around to 50-50 after it and decided to just sort of throw on this thing at the end that just, I guess, throws a bone to the people who mm. thought that Lori survived, that Lori didn't commit right. suicide. And that, to me, right. rang false. Right. Um. Yeah, the only thing that I I haven't talked about that I did talk about a little bit with people and, and feedback and stuff is that my own because because I I remember thinking that like man, it's it's awfully cold for Lori to go ahead and commit suicide after she's kind of given up that cloak uh, that that was so important to the strategy that Noro like you know the, the deniability the fact that like oh yeah oh yeah your 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 dad's here in <laughs> Australia and I am here too and I'm going to survive uh-huh. and. And it's everything's already so crazy that the they're they're going to have questions about what happens. And I th- thought about I haven't scuba dived. I want to, but I have skin dived a lot, and I've been to some of the best coral reefs in the world. Like outside of Australia, I've been to Hawaii and Belize and different ones in the uh, Bahamas and 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 elsewhere in the Caribbean. And every single time I go in the water and I see this extremely beautiful and amazing thing like i i it, it's hard for me to believe that a person uh as one emailer pointed out a person who has gotten a certification in scuba diving likes scuba diving so 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 they're naturally predisposed to have that kind of like awe reaction and kind of like oh my god this is like i'm so thankful uh that i'm alive to see this like i can't believe how lucky i am to be able to see this that they would have that conversation with their kids You're essentially saying it's impossible for her to commit suicide in that scenario no not impossible <laughs> but not 95-5 okay like heavily takes away from the 90 that and that that's that personal experience for me uh was a big mm-hmm. difference and the fact that like it's not 
it's not you going scuba diving or it's it's this person who loves to do this doing that. She's doing the thing that she loves as a recreation. But a lot of people want to go out doing the thing they love, right? Like there's that counter argument. Yeah. Like skydivers. Uh if you're if you're Brody from fucking point break, you probably yeah. want to go out skydiving. Well, it's like also, also or surfing, like, like you know? I, and then then I combine that with my argument from last week, which is essentially anyone can put a gun to their head and squeeze the trigger and boom. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone can jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. How many people could set an alarm clock for ten minutes, and at the end of that ten minutes, a bullet's going to shoot and blow their head off, and sit there for the whole ten minutes and be like, "Yep, yep, yep, this is what I want to do. Totally confident in what I want to do." Mm-hmm. Yep, no regrets, no regrets. And then my kid's going to call and tell me how much they love me and how much they're happy and how much I might want to see that experience. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I feel like 95.5 was, it seemed to me a, a rash. And I never, like, I I listened to our, our episode six coverage, and I was a little bit more like, yes, I think everything about this episode tells us that Lori's dead, but I'm not quite as certain as you were. Mm-hmm. So that's that's all I want to say. Okay. All right. Where do you want to go? Because I've got what what I've got is um, a bunch of quotes that I pulled from interviews that I thought were interesting enough to talk about on their own. Do you have anything in like an outline that you actually want to talk about? Uh, just a couple of things. All right. Do you want to go first then? Sure. Um, so I really like the the theme of this season being kind of the stories that people tell. Uh, I thought it was a strong one, and it it kind of you know permeated the whole season, and I think even right up to the very end. Um, depending on what you think about Nora's story there at the very end uh, about going to the other side and Kevin's saying, I believe you. I think it isn't just about the stories that people tell, but it's also the stories that people choose to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, th- I think that's that's an interesting idea to play with because it's not always just about truth and fact. Right. It's also about how people react, um, how people perceive things um and what people choose to believe because it feels good you know Uh uh-huh um and this show really explored that a lot and explored it well in my opinion yeah like i said i that's my whole premise for thinking the final season the final episode is brilliant in a way that i mean you you mentioned earlier that you think season two is better and i kind of think you i agree but I also think that the finale of season two is not as good as the finality of the series where, like, all those points are brought and perfected. Mm-hmm. Like, there's enough ammunition in the in the end to kind of, like, decide. And it is. There's not enough evidence. And I feel like that's there. there's not concrete evidence. And maybe you disagree with me there. But I don't feel like there's concrete evidence to conclusively say one way or another, what you believe happened in the finale. And at the end of the day, you kind of have to um, decide for yourselves. And I thought what was really interesting was it seemed like an unspoken creative decision that the writers thought they had in in, in the room an idea about whether Nora, for example, was lying or not. Mm -hmm. They did not communicate that with Mimi Leader. Um Mimi Leader wanted to know, what do you want to see on the screen? And then she executed that. And then Mimi did not have a conversation with Carrie Coon about what Nora actually believes. But yeah. in the interview with Carrie Coon, she has a clear idea of what whether she was lying or telling the truth. And she played it that way. But she's never going to say. She says she's going to take the secret to her grave. So I feel like... I think it's crazy cool that you have a creative decision that was respected so much as like a triple blind process. Mm-hmm. So 
you could like if if someone says I think Carrie Coon or I think Nora Durst is lying and she was selling this this bill of goods to Kevin uh, and just seeing if Kevin will swallow it in the same way that Kevin asked her to swallow you know if you want to get like plot that could be what the writers thought but the director thought something different and then the actor thought something different so who's right yeah like even in the fucking execution of the idea there's no concrete evidence yeah. So right. you could say, like, well, I think I'm on Damon's side, but are you on Mimi Leader and Carrie Coon's side? Who the hell knows? And they're not – none of them are talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hope – I really hope they – I really hope they, they – they, I, I hope they don't do a, like, Blade Runner and be like, you know what? This is I, – I, you know, we've we sat with this for 10 years, and all you dumbasses are still talking about this. Here's what re- – like, at some Comic-Con in 2027, mm-hmm. Lindelof hyping his next show is going to be like, fine, fuck it. You know, Nora was telling the truth. Like, I yeah. really hope that never happens. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think Lindelof rolls like that. No, I don't – and he's, and also like he seems like he's very tempted. Like in a lot of these yeah. interviews, I got yeah. I felt like he was just short of busting out the tell, but mm-hmm. it would really piss off Parada and some of the other people. So he doesn't want to. And then, and then what that do you well. what do you say if Parada says that's not necessarily my opinion, and I'm not going to tell you what my opinion is? Well, I do hope that if any, he's it, also a co creator, right? It's not like this right. is just Lindelof doing this thing. So yeah, yeah, like yeah. you said, it's the director, it's the actor, it's right. the other creator, it's everybody, right? Um, so just because somebody has one idea of what actually happened and they're part of the creative process doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you have to think. Yeah. So, um, what else did you want to talk about? Uh, they, so when they were writing this final scene or writing this final season, they kind of worked back from the backwards from the final scene is what Uh I was getting. You know, they had this idea that they wanted Nora to, um, be telling this story to someone. Uh, they weren't sure who, and I'm really glad they didn't go with their initial idea, which was, I think, Lily, uh, in the future. Like, she had come to visit for some reason, and Nora was telling her. One of the things I think I that would have been stupid. One of the things I want to do is podcast is there was five different alternate ideas that the writer's room had, and I want to consider each one, but that was that was the sixth bonus one that was essentially <laughs> okay. Book of Nora, except for told to. Yeah. I can see why that idea appeared attractive. Mm-hmm. Um it wasn't immediately obvious why it would be a terrible idea. Why? I mean, except for... Why there's only really one solution to that right. That final scene, and it's to tell Kevin. Yeah, and I think that's like like as, as, as interesting as the idea of telling Lily that Lily has like tracked her down, and she wants to see this mother who took her in, and she doesn't even remember. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. We don't have an emotional connection to Lily beyond... You know, the idea that she's Holy Wayne's kid and she at some point was speculated that she might have a really big part that you know, and it she, doesn't, doesn't and, imply and also, anything for the future. Also, we are terrified when she got thrown on the ground in the final moments of the, the Jarden debacle. Uh-huh. Uh, that's the only emotional connection we have yeah. to her. So yeah. it does feel like you're not going to have near the emotional punch. And also, what does that mean to, to Nora? Yeah, if she tells this child that she hasn't seen since she was a toddler this quote unquote truth of her experience versus her telling it to Kevin means everything. Yeah, so they yeah. have the most baggage, and I think it's important for them to at some point resolve that, or or at least seem like they could resolve it. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think I it was like a perfect her, decision. I feel like li- her t- telling it to Lily is the Walking Dead solution. Yeah, except for I can't yeah. conceive of how the hell they would have managed to luck themselves into. Because the situations think, where they're even able to, right. I can't come up with that idea. They were, they're always thinking like, wouldn't it be cool if? 
as yeah. opposed to what would feel right here like yeah. what makes sense here and also like okay that's good yeah. let's 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 take a break for chicken salad and uh, then come back and see what would be better yeah and, yeah, yeah. and like wrestle with over a couple of days it's it's almost like they just like thank god someone had a great idea next <laughs> right um yeah. Everybody, before we get into the rest of our uh, final fond farewell to the leftovers, wanted to talk about showkeeping or housekeeping, whatever, housebroken, <laughs> housebreaking. Uh, I gave a survey link out, and it, that was dead for the first couple hours. The podcast was released because we had a, a DNS screw up. Uh, if you went there and and it, it was a dead link, it didn't work. Uh, it's it's working now. Leftovers.baldmove.com. Uh, the link is also in the show notes for your convenience. Uh, and again. Uh, it's a way to help us make Bald Move better uh, and to be more attractive to advertisers in the future. And it's anonymous. We don't collect any personal information nor your email address. Uh, and it only takes a few minutes to complete. So I'd appreciate if you like what we did and we do, you do nothing else to support us, uh, doing the survey would be awesome. Uh, also, final attempt to let you know that if you want to show your leftovers pride with a Kevinth Day Adventist T-shirt, you can do so. It's a very sweet design. Uh, of a ch- of a of a of a like a I don't know like a woodcut looking print of a church on fire being flooded. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing, um, and you can get it at our shop if you go to baldmove.com. The link for the merch is on the homepage. Uh, also, since this is an HBO show, you might be interested in Con of Thrones, which is coming to Nashville, Tennessee, June thirtieth through July second. We are going to be a big part of that convention. We're doing several panels, and we're doing a live red wedding type of goof where we get in costume as uh lords Frey and uh bolton and uh try to kill a bunch of starks in front of everybody that's going to be cool uh of course we also have fargo and better call Saul going on for the next two weeks we watched mummy in the theater last ep- uh, last week we got a full review on that uh next up on that is baby driver coming out in a couple weeks uh we also had uh shutter island that we're having later this week uh commissioned podcast that uh stars leonardo Di- leonardo dicaprio directed by martin scorsese uh interesting little psychological thriller um that has tackles a lot of the same themes that the leftovers does all that can be found at baldmove.com check it out anyway i also thought it was interesting how much um like, like there was genuine emotion when when the like Carrie Coon is talking about her scene where she says goodbye to her brother was her and Chris Eccleson's last scene. Oh, that okay. was Chris's series wrap. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, how what was and also she was the last actor on the leftovers. The final scene was her walking naked into the chamber. Huh. Okay. Um, which and I thought what was really funny is that her last scene with Kevin was that she shot was them in the bathtub from the hmm. previous episode. Uh-huh. Which I thought, um, boy, um, just seems like to what great pains they took to kind of like put everybody. I, I thought for sure that the last scene they do together was the last scene they did together, but yeah, I guess it didn't work out that way. Uh, what else you got? Uh, I, I mean, we kind of already talked a little bit about this, but uh, how do you think season three stacks up against season two? And I guess why? Why would you? Why do you think whatever you think? Because <laughs> uh, of my subjective experience with reality. <laughs> um, you know, I I wrestle with it. I the 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 answer that comes instantly is I think season two is better. Yeah, me too. But I don't know why. That's I think it's because it hooked like, me like right at the beginning and never let go. Yeah, like there weren't these moments where I was like, uh, eh, 
that I wasn't so certain about that. Like Matt, I thought his episode in season two was better. Well, I mean that might be true because it had like it 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 seemed I don't man I don't know because like I I don't know that I well there were certainly bigger stakes like his stakes to get to Australia and rescue Kevin like I never really believed in mm-hmm. I never really believed that there was going to be some cataclysmic event like I was open to be pleasantly surprised but I I really thought that this was going to be a big a big dud and it was going to be about him facing his final disillusionment so. You know, him trying yeah. to say, get his, but the thing is, is do you believe that Mary had to be in Jarden to live? Because I, I'm, I'm granting that higher emotional weights and stakes, but that's just what Matt believed. And that's why I'm sure, saying yeah. like, it breaks down because like, why am I not as compelled in Matt's genuine belief that he has to get to Kevin to save himself and his family and all of Jarden or whatever? Why am I less wrapped up with that than it is just him trying to get Mary back in? It, I don't know. It was something about this like PG rated orgy with the weird lion stuff, and uh, it it just didn't hook me the way that his quest in you know the the lunacy outside of Jarden did. Yeah, um, I found that outside to be true. The last few times I've seen a scene that purports to show just general debauchery. It just like I think in the West World when you got out and it's like oh look at all the look at all the tasteful kinky sex people are having like yeah I don't know it just doesn't feel it, I've I felt that same thing like anytime yeah. someone shows even in HBO like stars with American Gods is starting to get to like okay I can see where you're going with this like uh-huh. um, because it genuinely infuses supernatural into the act of sex which I think is kind of like when you're in the middle of uh, coming. That's how you approach it, right? Nobody like that's like you know you're having an out of body experience, and so like just watching other people do weird fetish shit does not hook you the same way as just like you know if if you if you can go if you can show through some kind of special effects and editing some supernatural element in play that that feels more emotionally right. Hmm. Um, but yeah, like I I, I kind of get it. Whereas Matt stripping naked and putting himself in stocks or like a, 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 you know metaphorically crucifying himself to to save another individual feels like it's a little bit more on message and points yeah i thought so um no i really like the end of that season three mad episode uh it's mad 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 world mm-hmm. uh i think you know the conversion that he has there or the the realization i should say that he has there right. is really powerful and really strong but i think everything leading up to it was not as interesting to me um, not as as gripping as the stuff that he went through outside of Jarden. The other big difference I can see is we had eight episodes versus ten, uh-huh. and that was an ep- that was reading the Lindelof interview. The account seems to be that they weren't even sure they wanted another season. Mm-hmm. Um, and when HBO said you can have one more season, Damon said okay, fine. And they all like it seemed like him and Parada and a, a leader agreed that okay, okay, if they give us another season, our ta- tack is going to be, thank you very much. Please make this the last one because mm-hmm. I don't want to be doing this. Will they? Won't they? Will they? Won't they? And not you know, I, I want to be able to go out. So HBO come back and says, okay, you're greenlit for eight episodes. And Lindelof's like, okay, well, I just took it because there was no, it wasn't a negotiation; it was a statement of fact. So, <laughs> I also see that he said uh, in the Alan Sepinwall interview, the big casualty of going eight versus ten is Jill, Tommy, some of these other lesser like Erica. They all got short shrift, and yeah. Michael, in a way that if he had two more episodes, and I think that might be ultimately at the end of the day the big difference is that. 
season three didn't feel rushed because of all these seasons, like, it just feels like there's no fat on any of their bones. Uh, they're much like like uh, Justin Thoreau. Um, but, well, he's got some fat on one bone. Ha ha. Uh, but, but you know what I mean? Like, the, no, there's no wasted moments. So, like, the fact yeah. that you cut two episodes, and if you're one of the ones that wants to complain about Jill and Tommy, well, there you go. And mm-hmm. maybe that's the difference, that, like, there did seem like there was a chance for other characters to breathe, and they just were were suffocated instead. Yeah, I think so. Um, There's something The Murphys unnatural. were really interesting to yeah. me when they were brought up. Um, and, and, you know, you just can't ignore that fantastic scene between uh, Erica and Nora in season two that mm-hmm. was maybe unlike anything I... Episode, the intensity of it was just... Episode 206 lens is what you're talking about. Yeah, that was just so intense. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd never seen anything like it mm-hmm. in, in just a... a scene where two people are sitting across from each other talking, right? Like, it shouldn't have been that amazing, but it was. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think that speaks to how wrapped up I was in the whole uh, story of season two. And I think that that certainly carried through mostly to season three, but I think there are just some pieces of season three that I didn't quite like as much. Mm-hmm. And so season two wins out, but season three is still excellent. And I don't, I mean, I'm, I guess I like it better than you. Cause I don't have any parts in season three that I think are problems. Yeah. Um, I do think I generally, it, it wasn't cause, cause the other thing is like, there's only one time you can see international assassin hotel. Right. Um, I think when they went back to it, they all their instincts were smart, and mm-hmm. and they, it did surprise me that they were able to keep it as fresh as they were. They were, but it's the difference between seeing you know Star Wars for the first time and then seeing Empire Strikes Back. Even if Empire Strikes Back is better, you can only be in the theater for the first time in 1977 once, right? So sure. Um, I and I wasn't one of those people. <laughs> I saw it on Betamax years later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Like I, I. The, the the conclusion I come around with is I think season two ultimately is better and more well-rounded, but I think that season three's ending is what not redeems season three, but is season three's reason for existence. Yeah. Like, um, for whatever reason, like, I do think there's something to, like, the third time this, the charm with, with Kevin and Nora, and that I buy... That Kevin and Nora are are whole and healed and happily ever after in a way that I don't think I would have. Like I've always debated about like if if this is something's going to stick. Yeah. Now you know that's a crazy fucking experience to have. Um, but I do feel like it's kind of it's honest that when we come back in season three that Kevin's still tying bags around his head and he he's regressed in some way and then mm-hmm. and, and and Nora's never even advanced that much. Yeah. Uh, Lily being taken away from her, you know, it's fucking took away her her security blanket. So, mm-hmm. um, did you read the interview where Nora talk or Carrie Coon talks about when she decided to jump into the ladder machine? Mm, maybe I don't. I don't remember. She, exactly. I'll, I'll read a quote. Because I think the decision goes all the way back to when you have the phone call in the parking lot, and Marklin Baker says her kids' names. It happens right there. Mm. She's lying to herself from the first. Okay, so I can buy that. I do. I, I I feel like that. I feel like that. That rings true. That I mean, I have to watch it to see. But like that, she essentially, as soon as she heard her kids' names, knew she was going to get in that machine. Yeah. Um. Sounds that, right to me. She gets she that, gets but, very angry, but you can see there's there's something else behind it. Right, right. In a way that like 
she kind of got sucked into the you know the demon as until they like up until they started talking about the demon Azrael like she was all to uh, all for it. So the fact yeah. that these things are essentially the same kind of hope for an answer and it's solidly I mean at least they're in Star Trek science they're not like <laughs> right. in demonology that that's something that her clearly rational mind could could cling to. So yeah. like I wouldn't have said that. Uh, when I first saw that episode, I'd be like, oh, no, this is Nora doing her emotional Mythbusters, grief Mythbusters thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but her her statement on that, I thought, was was pretty right on. Yeah. Uh, what else do you got? Um, not much more. All right. I want to talk. I got some selected quotes from the Lindelof, and then I want to get into feedback because okay. there's a bunch of it. Um. So he said, Lindelof in the writer's room, we said, oh, that's going to be the ending of the season. Nora gets into this thing, and she actually goes through with it, and she has this incredible experience. Wouldn't that be amazing? Because we've been telling people all along that we're never going to answer where all the departed people went. It'll be sort of like a reversed loss where you get an answer that you weren't expecting versus you didn't get an answer that you were. I just want to read that because I'm a giant asshole, and I want to show that even the creator of the show acknowledges the fact that the whole fucking thing is a bait and switch, and everybody can just get off my fucking back right now already. (laughs) Great. Uh, that's all. I shouldn't rile up the forums at all. That's that's all I wanted to do. Uh, the forums are already adequately riled, <laughs> so they just need to calm the fuck down. Um, let's see. Um, so here are the five alternate endings that a writer's room came up with and dismissed. And I want to see if you thought any of them were interesting or if you thought any of them were better than what we got. Number one is the end of season... Uh, October 14th comes and goes. There's a huge massacre. Nora decides to use the ladder machine. There's a loud noise, and she kicks open the door and walks into the street, and nobody's there. She walks until she finds an older couple and surprises to see her. So this is the version where she actually goes through the ladder machine, and we share it the adventure. You don't like this, yeah? Yeah, I think it's a mistake. It it betrays the the feeling of the show. Why? That Because it's always been ambiguous. It's always been a question of you know, the story that you're telling yourself. So Um, I think it just betrays the show. If you show it, this goes back to our initial discussion in the season about whether we believe this was all, this was religious or science. Um, number one or supernatural science. Number one, Mm. I said, it's all rational. You said that you think it's supernatural. Have you changed? Has your opinion changed? No. Okay. Okay. That's fucking amazing. (laughs) Um, why? I just, I just feel like you are a walking contradiction when we're analyzing this stuff, and I can't quite put my finger on it. Um, Why? I mean, the the beginning of this show is a supernatural you think event. She's lying in a, mm-hmm. but why? I mean, I guess because I think she gets out of the machine. I don't think she goes through with it. Okay. Um, Not that there is no other place to go, but she just doesn't. But, but do also, it. I guess if you think it's ninety-five-five, unambiguous versus ambiguous. I'm surprised with that, I with that imbalance of this, with that imbalance of a, of, a, of a worldview on the finale. I'm surprised that you are you're prizing the ambiguity. I, I don't. So I think they're. I think it's yeah, super open to interpretation. I think like okay. I personally buy into this idea that she got out of the machine. But I, if you don't, then yeah, it's totally ambiguous. Uh, possibility two: Nora gets vaporized. We break her POV, and she's just gone. I guess she believes in us now. All the scientists high five each other. <laughs> then Kevin comes two days later and goes after her, and none of us know if they're alive or dead. So essentially, Kevin does the international assassins routine to try to get back with her, and they end in that world. Um, whether you're not, so it's, I guess it's the same thing huh. where they get back together, but you're not as sure if it's genuine or not. What would you think but about? That's weird because we're already not, right? The whole internet is like, 
Yeah. Was it real? Was it fake? Did so she I guess lie? going back the to truth? the fourth time for the International Assassin's Hotel, which it seems increasingly a weak metaphor since the last one didn't have a hotel. The International Assassin World. How would you uh, even do that after Kevin blew it up? Would no, he not I, blow it up, I guess? I get, yeah. I mean, th- okay. at this point, this because they work backwards. Right. So this is just an idea they had before they wrote the which, season. Which is always... Always great when you know where you're going before you start writing shit. Yeah, that um, I, I mean, it's, it's not the only way to do it, but I do feel like it's instructive that they did it this way. They 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 completely came up with the book of Nora, and then they work backwards to get there. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, I guess I I guess that would I I don't know. Um, so I guess so I guess it would be right for me to say they're going back to the fourth time because maybe their whole arc of the season would have been different. And, it would have been going back to the international set. I mean, I don't know. I I do think it would be fun to see Kevin and Nora in that world. Like a James Bond mm. Bond girl or James Bond versus Atomic Blonde maybe, like kind of thing where they're actually mm-hmm. their their spiritual and emotional conflict and struggle, like they could even get Mr. and Mrs. Smith with it. Like I think that's super fun, but I, I don't I think it would be, but yeah. But I don't know if it would I've... feel right. But then again, I didn't think – if you'd have told me that they had this dick scanner, I'd have right. been the same way. Like, why are you fucking with the dick joke in the middle of the penultimate episode of Leftovers? But they did, and it, it worked. They did it twice. Yeah. It's tough to say. I mean, I like what they did, so I don't want them to change it, even though I do th- agree, like, that could be cool. That could right. be fun. Right. Uh, three is, like, I feel like a kind of a synthesis of the first two. Kevin goes – uses the hotel to find Nora once she's died. Kevin's shaman journey with Nora – or maybe Nora has a shaman in her own right. So this is like, I guess, the what would it look like to have an international hotel perspective from Nora's perspective? Hmm. I think yeah, I don't, I don't th- know. That, that too would like. be interesting and fun. Uh, for Eldry, uh, Nora comes through and there's an Well, Eldry- I, l- let me ask okay. you this. Do you think that is a an ability that is unique to Kevin? Uh-huh. Because well, it always seemed to me that this I was just think, something Kevin was able to do as opposed to I everyone. think that Kevin, these were all delusions of a dying man. So, okay. no, I don't think that just anyone could do this. I do think that, um, like, I, I, I feel like that maybe only Kevin could do it in a certain sense that Kevin's a unique individual with a certain diet of pop culture that he brought into that those death experiences. Right. But um, So Nora could... could do the same thing but it would be completely different it would and that that would be like it would be interesting to see because i'm thinking like what if my sister you know because they're about the same age and like what would a international assassin's hotel look like it was based on like gin and the holograms and (laughs) my little pony and strawberry shortcake and not whatever the the you know uh the rom-com version of james bond would be you know uh-huh. like would that be an interesting uh, space to play in and i say yes yes it would but i i i don't know it might come off too toy Sto- toy story i don't know mm, yeah uh four nora comes through there's an elderly couple they tell her here's the deal you can't tell anyone that you came from a place where only two percent of the world's population disappeared it will destabilize our harmony it was a rough couple of years. Everyone lost everyone, but we formed new families and new connections. And if we understand from the 84 people that came before you, the wor- that world is a fucking mess. The twist on that being that you lose 2% of the world and everyone loses their fucking mind. This is kind of like the Joker. You lose 2% of the world, everyone fu- fucking loses their mind. You lose 98% of the world and everyone comes together over it. 
Is this so they Nora saying it after she's come back from there? Well, they or? don't say that. So this is just a concept. So it's a, it's what the uh, what happens next. Oh, I don't know, but I it's think, like a thought experiment sort of thing. Well, I mean, I, I guess it's the uh, an idea the writers room kicked around to see if they can make a season out of it. But I think that's hmm. interesting, and it does say something. I think it's it's, uh, it's also it's not just a joke. It'd be like Joseph Stalin, like you know, the death of a million people is a statistic. The death of one is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Like you know, if you come from a world where let's, I guess it's the Walking Dead world without zombies, right? would everyone would just have to get over their shit like it wouldn't be like oh you have a person like everyone's nora cursed right and no one has a family so then everyone that you find it would be like you cling to them like a life preserver i think that's interesting concept and the fact that they're healthier because of them the shared intense grief than than a world where only two percent of the people got unlucky Mm -hmm. yeah it's an interesting idea um maybe for another show (laughs) you know uh, number five, Kevin dies as a martyr. The only way to end your own story is to take yourself off the table. He stages a crucifix and then has to go lay low. In this world, Kevin is a grief-stricken messiah who is grieving and never went and followed after Nora. What do you think about that? So he fakes his death? Yeah. And then he somehow, fucks off to... Somehow to get away. And I... Peru or wherever I see the Mark tension there because did. because the, what they went is like Kevin completely assumed his desires to all these people, which is a pretty inhuman reaction. Mm-hmm. But what if like he told his dad and Matt and John and Michael and everyone just to fuck off, and he did some kind of I don't know, he engineered his own messianic death and then just went like and didn't like Nora did, went off hiding in the outback. Okay, I just don't think it would work. Mark Lynn Baker tried that. He failed. <laughs> now you got Jesus trying it. But he's more famous. So. Like you know, could the could the yeah could until the the, the, the police good uh, what is it? Good day, Melbourne gets a G'day hold of Melbourne. the story of the guy who crucified himself and then was never seen again. Yep, yep. And then, and then David Kevin Burton the most got, gets pissed. He's horning in on his God action. Yep. All right. Um, so I already said, so just another, there's this other thing that I had of a, a conversation with da- Damon Lindelof where he said, you talked about the process of him and Parad in the writer's room delivering a script to Mimi Leader, who did not ask about what they thought about it, who then delivered it to Carrie Coon, who did not ask about what either the writers or, uh, we already talked about that, so I just, um, yeah, this is the thing. I, I didn't know that I wrote this down. Um, here's what Lindelof said. He goes, I, after episode six, I was like 95% sure that Laurie was dead. That that episode would only have meaning if she killed herself. But 5% is not an insignificant odd, and also no idea divided the writer's room like the fact that Laurie had killed herself, particularly amongst the two writers who wrote it, Patrick and Carly, both of whom went along with the plan that Laurie was dead. But when once we watched the dailies, it started shifting away from 95 and started dropping immediately to like 50%. Because I was like, Amy Brenneman just doesn't look right now like someone who's about to kill herself, playing the other side of this phone call, driving out on the boat. Is this what people look like before they kill themselves? Do they look heroic and brave and courageous? More importantly, when Jill and Tom call, why doesn't she tell them she's in Australia about to go scuba diving? Was that us leaving a message for ourselves that she didn't kill herself? So I... What what mm-hmm. do you think when I, he says stuff like that? Like, I mean, is that a failure of the creative? You know, like we filmed something that we meant to to evoke this feeling, and we failed apparently because that doesn't look like someone. Uh, the the writing, like none of this makes sense. <laughs> this is like I know? got a little trouble for calling lost a creative failure. I meant 
that it was a very creative thing that ultimately failed to do what it set out to do. <laughs> oh, right. All okay. right? That's yeah, different yeah. than saying it was a bankrupt creative From enterprise. Start, yeah, all right? So – Right. That's kind of what I'm trying to get at. Like – yeah, I mean, if you take if his you word, look at what you've they done meant it to be 95.5, but after they watched the dailies and her performance and everything as a whole, it became closer to 50-50, which is kind of how I, I was more like 75-25. Um, and I do like the thing that this, this is, do they look brave, heroic and brave and courageous? I don't know. I don't know. I've never seen... I've, do I've, they have to look sad and pathetic and, and uh, just... Destroyed? I've like never devastated? been with someone as they know. committed suicide. I've, Neither have I. I've I've had two suicides in my in my life close to me, but I've never mm-hmm. been with them in that moment, so I don't know. Yeah. I would imagine not. Yeah, but like, I mean, there's I, I don't know between, that everyone looks exactly the and same. There's also they're... a difference between like someone who is volunteering to go into like you know Spock style go into a flooded room of radiation to save a knowing bunch of people they'll die, sure. knowing they'll die then just committing suicide out of grief and pain mm-hmm. and you know I, I i don't know like i i so is it a creative failure i guess but also is it a creative failure if they saw what was going on and it was working for them and they went a different direction i'd say that's a creative pivot not necessarily a creative failure sure but it's what what the real the thing I'm really interested in is you call it a creative failure, but he's saying <laughs> he's essentially saying he saw the same scene that you did and came away with the opposite conclusion that you did. Yeah. Well, I, so I that think means he's it's asking, a creative success, but he interpreted his own work incorrectly. That's even more fascinating. No, I, I think it's more the pivot thing. Like they saw what they had created and said, "This doesn't look like someone to us." Um, who is going to commit suicide? That's what I just said. Like you saw that and said, "I'm 95 five percent certain they're they're dead." That's what he wrote. He saw yeah. it, and I'm like, "Now, I'm well, 50, I think 50. they're. I think they have a certain idea of what someone who is about to commit suicide has to look like." And I guess I don't necessarily buy that. There's like one way that someone has to look when they're about to commit suicide. Yeah, and and they seem to have a very firm idea of what that is that I don't. So I guess they interpret it differently. Here's another quote because people there's a lot of debate about did Lori know that Kevin was spending his vacations in Australia um, debate you know like looking for Nora and the quote from the Alan Suppenwall interview Damon says we wrote a line where Kevin is explaining to Nora that what he's been doing showing her picture around and he says I quote I tell everyone back home that I'm going horseback riding or mountain climbing or going on these grand adventure trips because I'm too ashamed to tell them that what I'm really doing is looking for you. Mm-hmm. Thoreau said on the set, I don't want to say this line because I think it's implied. And I was like, well, in the spirit of clarity, because this may be an important issue, can we just shoot it that way and decide <laughs> editorially? Wisely, an actor knows when they hear that, they know it's going to in, not end up in the show because it's, well, now you're ignoring me. I felt that now if I stick the line in, I'm betraying Thoreau. I'm willing to take on a bit of ambiguity surrounding it, and I can go into the world and tell the story that I'm telling you now. But Lori did not know that Kevin was been searching for Nora all this time. I hope the audience jumps to that conclusion, independent of reading this. There's a patient confidentiality because you gave me a pack of cigarettes once, and then there's just being super abusive to someone. I think she knew that Kevin was suffering to that level that he was. She would have said something. I, for one... Okay. I for one thought that Lori's the type of person that like takes client patient confidential confidentiality seriously, yeah. uh, and I would never be date. I would never want to be uh, Damon Lindelof's patient because it's apparently <laughs> it's it's okay to violate the confidentiality if you really 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 think it's the the way to go. 
Right. Um, but it's, it, did, did that surprise you? So, I, I yeah, I read that interview and I was um, not surprised. I guess that was my my general feeling on it, even though I don't have a reason for it. Uh, so, I, so I guess either way, like whether Lori, like who cares? Who fucking cares? I mean, it says something about Lori. Okay, but the thing you want to learn about Lori is whether or not she's dead in that scene, right? Like, for yeah, I I honestly don't give a shit what, okay. lo- whether or not Lori knew that Kevin was going. Okay, because it has no impact on the end in my mind. Okay, I mean, I agree with that. It has okay. nothing to do with Kevin and Nora. It's only about Lori. Yeah, and you know, if it's important to you, that's uh, the creator says that that was a line, and it was we're supposed to all get it by implication, which I did not. But there, yeah. there it is. Um. He also so one of the things I read that I was kind of surprised is that Damon Lindelof a little bit agrees with the criticism that season one sucks compared to season two, and and, and onwards. He said that he can't even. I refuse to watch the pilot because I think it's amateur hour. Like that's not his. Huh. I didn't write that exact quote because he goes, I can't physically bear to watch the pilot anymore. Yeah, yeah, I, I read that too. That's um, interesting. And he said, and I actually here's the thing, like. Even though I think episode three is where the leftovers really kicks off, but the the boat one, the boat, the, the, the helicopter, helicopter boat, and the, the, yeah, 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 Danish or whatever, and the Danish, <laughs> yeah, that's it. The day God sent Danish and the bagel when, was it a bagel he, sandwich? When, when yeah. you wouldn't even eat the bagel, that's when God said, <laughs> "Pack it up, boys, we're letting this fucker drown." Yep. He goes, "I actually measure the show in pre Mimi and post Mimi terms, and I can say it can't say in stronger terms how influential and consequential Mimi Leader was to the show." Now, if you don't know Mimi Leader. Uh, directed episode six, no, five. And until that, Le- Leslie Linka, Gladder, was doing the directorial executive producer job, which is that's like the person that corrals all the other directors. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, I guess, got recalled back to Homeland when they got picked back up. So she left the leftovers and went back to Homeland. Probably a career mistake, but who's to say? Uh, when Mimi came in for the back half of season one and stayed all the way till the end, that for me is where the appreciable shift happened in both the process of making the show and understanding what the show was. As much as I like the third episode, I kind of feel like the back half of season one is... And that episode she directed is when Gladys got stoned, hmm. which I remember... Like, I I always liked the show, and I thought it was a bit, like... It, it started kicking into, like, I've never seen anything like this before. Like, yeah. such an unflinching, fucked-up thing. Um, so I guess... I, I'm I, again. I'm not going to go say the season one sucks and that you you have to like you got to take your medicine. You got to fucking see episodes of season one to to enjoy the rest of the season. Even though I agree with that, I don't think season one is particularly bad medicine. But Lindelof thinks so. He thinks the yeah, first I, half is much weaker than the second half, which is amazing to me. Yeah, I guess I agree with that. I mean, I I, I was definitely hooked from early on. It wasn't like oh this show sucks. Why am I watching it for the first five episodes? But mm-hmm. It was definitely like, I, I think season two is light years better than season one. Um, what, but without talking shit about season one, right? Right, right. Okay. okay. I, I mean, it was a good show in season one, but it was a great show in season it's two. Like, it's like season one and two of Breaking Bad versus season right. three and on a Breaking Bad. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It, it, um, it, it, I don't think it's shit. I just, it's not as good. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I could see like there's a divide somewhere around the middle of that season where it gets, you know, not great, but better mm-hmm. than the first half. 
Um, Alan Supnell asked him, what would you do done if you'd done 10 episodes? We kind of talked about this, but I'll get the full quote. Uh, yeah. I definitely have a John Murphy episode, probably more John centric, but we would probably have been able to use Regina again, especially if we'd shot it in Austin. Uh, and we would have figured out a way to do that. Then I'd probably include a little bit more of Tom and Jill. I don't know exactly how, but revisit those characters in the context of the later episodes. I don't think they were ever going to go to Australia because that started to feel a little t- too Keystone copsy. But given those characters' prominence in early seasons, it doesn't entirely sit well with me that the final season pushed them so significantly to the side. And a lot of people ask me, what are my regrets for The Leftovers? Um, this is me speaking, not Damon Lindelof now. And I guess that's probably the two big ones that some of these, like Erica... John or er- Erica and Jill and Tommy kind of got a little bit of short shrift, especially Jill. Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember where Jill was at the end of season two. I know. Did did she ever have a a reuniting with her mother? I know they were physically reunited, but I don't know if they like ever came to terms. It seemed like that's where the end. Like like the, the big thing was like a, her and Nora had kind of bonded, but things yeah. were kind of shaky because of all the crap that's going on. Like the, the Jill was scared that like this thing with my dad is happening again, and I didn't think this was going to happen again. Uh, but then the yeah. final scene, the final scene where everyone, like her mother included, is there. Right. I, I guess if I if guess the show I tells me that she's fine. I believe that, but, and, you know, I did think that most of what's going on with her in season, because Jill's arc was, Jill was a good kid, mm-hmm. great student, loved her family, and she got this fucking, you know, sudden departure that didn't even affect them, but it completely sent her parents into a crazy tailspin. Yeah. I kind of believe that if their parents worked their shit out and returned to her, you know, gave her a sense of stability and love and her place in the universe, that she would go on to her trajectory of being a normal person. Yeah. Tommy's a little bit more it's... fucked up because he was older and he saw a bit more shit. Um, but, like, I don't know. Yeah. I, I guess I believe Jill more, but I do, I do like that actor and... Yeah, I do feel like we could have used a little bit more of Jill, like to see how she got to her happy place, you know, as yeah. opposed to just saying, hey, she's there. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, again, uh, but yeah, um, it's tough with eight episodes. more Margaret Qualley or Qualley. Uh, by the way, if you want to see more Margaret Qualley, I just saw The Nice Guys um, with uh, Russell Crowe and uh, God damn it, the guy from The Driver. I can't remember his name ever. Paul, no. Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling. Uh, it's hilarious. It's great. And she's got a big role in it. So if you if you want to see more Jill, go see The Nice Guys. It's on HBO right now. You already got the subscription. I know. So let's go queue it up and watch this weekend. Um, he's also asked by Alan, is Kevin's previously undiscovered heart condition meant in any way to explain his continued escapes from certain death? Or was this just a p- way to point out that he's imminently mortal now? Damon says, more the latter than the former. Another possible interpretation is that it wasn't a previously undiscovered heart condition, but it was damage sustained by dying multiple times. <laughs> it was always important to us that Kevin sustained physical consequences for his trips to wherever their trips to. What's most important is the bridge has been destroyed, as has the place it leads to. So I thought that was interesting, and I got several emails asking me to comment on about the meaning of his heart scar, essentially, and that's straight yeah. from the, the creator's mouth. Um, also, I thought that Nora, the scene where Nora's eyes were streaming tears was completely unscripted. That's something the director, Daniel Sackheim, was going for and, like, blew Damon away when he saw it. Yeah, um, yeah, he didn't know he got that yeah, shot. Yeah, and, like, I guess it was also really uncomfortable for Carrie Coon to fit photograph because she had to keep her eyes open while they're, like, spraying. Because I guess it, 
water doesn't show up well on the TV on on, on this on the movie cameras. Mm-hmm. And they have to spray like ten times the amount of water to you actually see. So there, she was like describing as like holding your eyes open as a fire hose is hitting it. Um, huh. So yeah, uh, let's see. Also, here's the other one. Here's and then we're gonna get to feedback. Someone, uh, uh, Alan Sepinwall asked him if he sees a future for anything in the leftovers, mm-hmm. and he goes, "Let me just say this." If Leftovers becomes a global sensation, in other words, it doubles its ratings from 11 people watching to 22, and there's a massive demand suddenly for the Leftovers conventions, and it becomes like what Star Trek did after it's canceled, and people are like, there has to be more Leftovers. I will make one season of Nora and my- Mark Lynn Baker's adventures through on the other side. Uh-huh. Is that a joke, or is he kind of serious about that? I think it's a joke. I think it's a joke too, but I also think. I mean, I don't know that he wouldn't. He's do a much of a he's, showman. That, but here's the thing: he's setting up an impossible target right. to hit. So I, is it's it a joke. impossible? Because yeah. I here's it's the impossible. thing: <laughs> there is an annual The Big Lebowski mm-hmm. Fest where people gather in bowling alleys and they wear bathrobes and flip flops and you know all kinds of crazy shit, Viking horns on their heads, and they they celebrate all things The Big Lebowski. You're telling me there's never going to be a convention where hundreds of people to get together to wear white and smoke outside and, ha- and hold placards and freak people out. I don't know that that's true. This, people... this society, I think, could rally around something like this if it would get a, cri- a, a critical threshold. I'm trying to imagine a person who hates the Big Lebowski, actively despises it. Uh <laughs> And that person is impossible to conjure in my mind because I don't think they exist. Sure. Uh, there are people who hate this show. Like, this mm-hmm. is a very divisive show. It's not like a, you know, kind of come together, we all love this sort of yeah. thing. I think it'd be much harder to get a convention going for this thing. Hmm. Like, you, I think you got a shot wait, right wait, now. Wait, 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 wait. What do you mean nobody hates it? Because you think that, like, people are on the fence about Big Lebowski are making these Big Lebowski fests work? Like I think it's it, you're looking at the wrong end. Like it, all you need is enough people to be that in love with something. Yeah. Not like what so, is what does a leftovers convention look like? I just described is it, a it. Bunch it's a bunch of sad white sacks stuff. walking around it's, grieving. It's a bunch of people cosplaying oh, as Kevin Perot and Carrie Coon. Good luck with that. Yeah. Um It's a bunch of people like it's it's like stocks and the vibe like a bunch there of is not going to be good. Well, it's going to be real bad. You say that, but mm-hmm. I bet I bet there's a way to to have it be fun. Yeah, I don't know. I just think that like um, I mean, it's clearly I, I think a you're joke. right. It's clearly I think you're right. He's trying to set this impossible scenario. I'm just yeah. saying, ten years from now, it wouldn't blow my hair back to see that this has become a reality, and now people are going to be like, sure, you know, where's my, where's a Nora and Mark where, and Baker? Let me ask you this: twenty two million people watching Lost. Where's the Lost convention? There are plenty of passionate people about that. That's because far more because than this. everyone knows and just won't say it. The Lost <laughs> fucking sucks, and it should never been aired. And it was it's it, Damon Lindelof is lucky didn't ruin his career. Yeah, no one wants to say that, but I will be the brave one that says it. Yep, I, I applaud your bravery, your courage. <laughs> is there not a Lost convention? I I've never heard of one. There might be. I don't know. There probably is, but huh. I've never heard of it. I remember that the guy that we went to Walker StalkerCon when they started branching out in Chicago. Yeah. And they had some guy, and I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? And you're like, oh, he showed up in, like, season three of The Lost, and he drew a big crowd. Right. I don't, I don't think it was, was for whatever werewolf show he was on. Then, like, <laughs> I, man, go yeah, to I mean, panel, maybe there's I potential. Lot, yeah. Maybe yeah. you could get a Lost convention going. I don't know. I'm not the person that would try. <laughs> so <laughs> before we get to feedback, uh, if you've appreciated the coverage that we brought to The Leftovers this season and all the seasons, and I think that, uh, you know, 
I think we done a pretty good job. And based on the feedback, people enjoyed the show. I think I think we haven't left uh, much on the the field or on the table. We we, we brought to. it. We we've got it all out into the podcast. Um, if you if you see value in that, um, we really could use your support. The best the best way to keep this independent type podcast stuff that's not give a shit about access and 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 corporate sponsors and just you know tells the the, the truth and respects as as many different fan opinions as possible. Uh, the best way to do is directly support it by going to club.baldmove.com. Now, you don't get nothing. I mean, obviously, you get all these great free podcasts, but you also get a bunch of stuff that's exclusive to club members, such as ad-free feeds and VIP access to forums, but also um, extra bonus podcast material, such as Quip, what we call Quit Your Pitching, which is where Jim and I randomly generate television show titles, and then we pretend what that show would be about, who would star it, uh, what's the plot? This week we had one a segment that uh, is called Dame Furry. Uh, you can hear that at the end of this podcast, which of course contains no spoilers. So if you don't want to listen to feedback, you can zip through and listen to a fairly lengthy, if I recall, pitch for Dame Fury um, about what if Judy Dench, James Duty Dench, had a secret life in the London Underground as a furry sex advocate, and it became public. And it became public. What would happen? <laughs> Don't you want to know? Listen to the end of the podcast. And uh, if you want more of that, you can go to club.baldmove.com. Get a free 30-day trial to really, really kick the tires and, and test drive the thing. Uh, club.baldmove.com. We could use your support. Um, okay, we got feedback. Feedback, leftovers, a ball. Wait, why am I giving it out? This is never happening again. Yeah, don't send feedback because it'll be lost to the I, void. I don't, I don't care if there are 22 million people watching The Leftovers. Um, 98% of the feedback I will, will guarantee disappear. if there is a Nora and Marklin Baker season that we will be back for that. How okay. about that? And we will read all the feedback that we get in the meantime. So send it <laughs> to theleftovers.com. Oh, that's the other thing is, man, like several hundred people, very intelligent people sent me feedback, and of course I can only read a, a select amount of that, so I I tried to get yeah. everyone's ideas out there, if not your actual words. Uh, Mike B., in one of your recent Leftover podcasts, you guys were discussing what would need to happen in the real world to make you abandon your atheism status and become believers once again. As an atheist as well, that made me wonder if I could maintain my own atheist status if I lived within the Leftovers world. My question to you guys, if you found yourself in the Leftovers world and alongside... Uh, Kevin over the span of three seasons would you have become religious in some capacity what if anything would make you religious the departure, Jarden, Kevin's multiple resurrections, would the absurd number of coincidences be too much for either of you to not believe there's something bigger than yourself at play Hmm. so has this season changed Uh, because here's the thing I can see a lot of things would make me question my rationality but I also am going into there uh, with the possibility that I could be insane Okay, and I yeah. and I, I think that's that's, that's what sure. that's what believers don't consider. Like I and I, mm. I don't know because um, you know we, we just watched Shutter Island uh, recently, and that's a question that it's, it's like, can you think yourself out of a psychotic episode? And it seems like that the consensus is no. So like I could be saying, oh, even if I saw a literal burning bush that gave me command to do something that I'd be like, well, I just need to go see a psychiatrist immediately, but I don't know if you're, if my brain is faulty, how can I guarantee it's going to think straight? Mm. That's different. Sure. That's different from saying that you start from, a, I'm not saying that everyone that believes in God is crazy. Okay. I'm just saying that if I started believing in God, my first, uh, my, my first rational thought would be that I'm crazy, but I don't know that I'd be allowed to have it. What is your opinion? 
Yeah, I mean, so he's assuming, okay, this this 2% of people disappear, uh, sudden departure happens. You're friends with Kevin Garvey. Right. Um, You're jogging buddies. <laughs> okay. No one's looking at me. They're all looking at Kevin. They're not even looking uh, at Kevin. They're looking at what's yeah. going on in his pants. Right. That, that fiasco. Uh, it, it's interesting because you you have to – science always comes with the caveat of we don't know everything, right? And so when something like the sudden departure happens, a lot of people are going to say, well, God did it. Right. And that wouldn't be me. I would say something we don't understand happened. Right. How can we investigate it? Can we figure it out? Um I, I would hope that the rationality wouldn't just go out the window like that. <laughs> and I would say, well, God exists. Uh, but I guess you never know until you take that journey. And the, the further along the journey you get with Kevin, like what if you're Michael and you see him come out of the ground, essentially? Mm-hmm. I guess he doesn't technically see see that. But, eh, you know, he, he right buries there. him yeah, yeah, and yeah. then he's there. Yeah. Uh, that that has you starting to question, like, how could something like this happen? And I don't, I don't think it would be just this switch that turns that I'm like, yep, God. It would be more like, man, I don't, I don't understand. Something is clearly at play here that I don't understand, mm-hmm. that, that human beings don't understand. And I think then you begin to investigate it. Yeah, that's a good answer. I'd be, I'd be more like the, the latter scientist, right? Like <laughs> did, right. seeing if there was some way to, to recreate it or experiment with it or something. Ted V., even though I believe Nor was not telling Kevin the truth about what happened, I still find the whole alternate Earth theory kind of interesting. You guys mm-hmm. kind of glossed over that part in your recap podcast. I understand why, as that's not really the point. But I was wondering if you guys could take a few minutes and talk about where Nora said she went, the logistics of the whole thing, and why it would and or why it wouldn't work. We've already tried to do this once in a podcast, and it kind of was leading to a podcast site, and we deleted it. Is that what happened? I think. I don't think we were talking was, about that, but yeah, but but something. let's let's. let's I want, I want to humor the guy. Okay. What are your problems with Nora's story? I'll start. Why in the hell would someone go to that side, find that they were right, and not immediately come back and say, I'm right, I can reunite every, I can fix all this? Right. Whether it's for love or money, right? Yes. Like, th- you're probably going to come back and, and use what you've learned. Yes. And it's not like you have to believe me. I can build this machine. Right. I can go there and come back. Like, it can be repeated any number of times. QED, motherfuckers. Yeah, I can go there and I can bring your loved one through with me. Mm -hmm. I can just bring him back if you want. Like, that. will that prove it to you? Yeah, or they don't want to come back. They they like where they're at. But, like, you know. And, I I mean, I guess... Yeah, I mean, there's there's things you could say like, what if, if everybody and it's ten years from now have happened or seven years and now people start to remarry and people like you mm-hmm. know you can't put all it's it's not like Humpty Dumpty you, you, or it is like Humpty Dumpty you can't put it all back together again. Maybe that would give you pause. Like he like this one guy who did it came up with some kind of personal prime directive, but it's a stretch. It is. Yeah. What's another What's another problem you have with it? Um, I don't know because I I do think it's actually kind of a cool idea. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's, it's something a, that like I would said, probably watch it, a whole show on. Honestly, those 15 minutes are like a very good Ray Bradbury short story, short science fiction. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, logistically, like, why do I have a problem? Yeah. I, I don't know that I do. I, the other problem, I think, is um, regardless of how the world reorients itself, I find it very hard to believe that someone would li- choose to live in an abandoned Mapleton, New York with their family in a place that's completely, you know, like instead of 
50,000, there's 500 people living there. Mm-hmm. Why in the hell would you do that? Why? Like, like in, in some kind of apocalyptic scenario, everyone kind of, like, journeys to, to central parts where people can, like, because you're looking for doctors, you're looking for engineers, you're looking for, you know, people that can keep you keep you safe. and Not, not even safe, because they're not, like, a zombies or whatever, but, like, you know, keep, keep society running. Like, yeah. why would everyone still be so dispersed like that? Doesn't yeah, make any that's a good sense. question. That seems like a just. That seems like kind of a fairy tale. There's another mm. problem. Is there not? I mean, that's like kind of scraping the surface. The like you said, there's the physical. Like there's evidence that it looks like, for all intents and purposes, that she was about to open her mouth to scream stop. Could be, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> I have not had any time to think about this, so. I don't have anything off the top of my head. Those are ones off the top of my head. And again, if you want to, there's like ton, like very popular Reddit threads and stuff. If you want to go delve into the details, but I'm the other thing is I'm just not super interested in that either. Uh, Ed P. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on the subject of those who like Lori had a fetus depart. According to Nora's explanation of finale, Lori's fetus departed without her. Would this mean that over there, Lori would have departed from her fetus? That means any pregnant woman who departed would have left the fetus behind. Am I right? Yeah, totally. It seems that way. Totally right. If if the latter story is true, yeah. If if the pre- like and that feels like something that I don't know. It might have been on the news once or twice. Yeah, like pregnant woman left the fetus behind. Horror, horror uh. ensues. Um, but yeah, I think I I got nothing to say against it, Ed. Scott R. As you know by now, the intent of episode six was originally to have Lori go through the suicide, but she was brought back from the dead to boost morale in the writers' room, leading into the last two episodes. I think that's a simplistic explanation of what Lindelof was trying to say, but sure, whatever. Knowing this, it's understandable that people are upset of having her alive in the finale undermined episode six. However, I think it's unfair to say her last minute decision to keep living was out of character. Throughout the show, Lori has been shown not to be able to follow through with her decisions. In chronological order, her <laughs> first marriage didn't work. She puked up her pills during her first suicide attempt. She bailed on her second marriage with Kevin and ran away from her family. She couldn't commit to being in the guilty remnant. She shut down her her holy hug operation with Tommy. And finally, she quit trying to be the rational one that would qu- talk everyone else off the supernatural ledge. Had she gone through with the scuba side, it would have been a tragic moment of character growth for her where she finally managed to see something through to its end. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Instead, she made a decision that is much more fitting for her character at, by pulling out in the last minute. In doing so, she gets to have the more fulfilling character growth of commu- committing to her marriage with John and setting, settling into her new role as grandmother. She even comments, commits to being Nora's therapist, though several years later. Um... And he ends with, it's bittersweet, and I can't believe this amazing series is already over, but I'm already awaiting the series wrap-up cast same time next week. Well, that's that's heartbreaking. Do nope. you think we could, how long do you think we could keep the show going about the finale, the leftovers? Uh, kind of like those shows I mean, Minute that do, by minute, yeah. Like like the, the the one you told me about that's like Grown Ups too. They just, they, they watch it over and over again, and every week yeah. they talk about the movie. Yeah, they, uh... Could we turn this into a stunt podcast where we just talk Worst about the leftovers ever, and we never stop? Probably, yeah. I mean, there are podcasts out there that cover shows and movies minute by minute. They do like an hour you on saw, a single I saw minute. That, like the Wrath of Khan, minute by minute. Right. And and as you expect, they start off with a minute of credits, and it's like, okay, you're going to do an hour on this first minute of credits mm-hmm. where there are two names and a swoosh went by <laughs> like okay sure so i, I imagine if we took it superman font swooshes by we could do what like 
75 of those? minute by minute. Yeah. Every, wow, the first Just episode the would be 60 episodes long. Yeah. Keep doing that. We could literally do that the rest of our lives. Probably. It would take us. And thir- then you do the rewatch. It would take us 30 some years to get through it. Yep. Wow. So as long as you want. Essentially, <laughs> if I thought that would be popular, I would do it. Yeah, because I just like something. I think it'd be excruciating talking about something. But how, like, I mean, you just have to you have to open up and just riff on it and have a good time. Yeah. It's not. It wouldn't be anything like the podcast we do. Are the is, are the Rathacon and the Grown Ups podcast? Are they actually successful? The the worst idea in the world. Yeah, that's wildly successful. Mostly, I think, because it got a lot of press because it was an interesting idea and people just. Huh listen f- almost to see what a horror show it is yeah uh and then, then personality right they got hooked to like the the mcelroys and they do podcasts with them now and so i think they're mm-hmm. becoming a thing interesting yeah yeah um i don't know i feel like that uh if it was the only thing i was doing that's the other thing is like crucially how many more things can you do in your life yeah you know if it was just something i was if it was a flyer was taken as a hobby but yeah. anyway not gonna happen unfortunately no. all good things must end uh, Daniel from Detroit. I came away from the finale so sure that Nora was telling the truth that I was shocked and even annoyed that the show had eliminated some of the mystery of the departure hmm. until I went online and realized that others weren't seeing it the way I was at all. Now I'm listening to your coverage of the finale and seeing you guys are leaning that way as well. The reason I feel like Nora is telling the truth is that in a certain sense, Nora is all about the truth, or at least a certain kind of truth. She hates the idea of useful fiction. Nora lacks the ability of self-delusion, and it just makes her angrier when she sees others being able to live in blissful e- ignorance. I've heard some say that Nora denying knowledge of Kevin is proof that Nora is not a completely honest person. Therefore, we have to distrust her monologue at the end of the episode. I totally disagree because in the same way the groom parses the difference between mistakes and sins, not all fictions are lies. Nora told the nun a fiction, but all of her other actions were about a dogged pursuit of a deeper truth. In the same way that Jim complained about Lori's non-suicide invalidating episode 6, I would say that if Nora is lying at the end of the finale, then it completely invalidates not everything... Not only everything we know about Nora from previous seasons, but more importantly, everything we see her doing in this one, her most character-defining hmm. episode. Or I think it's potentially growth on that character's part, you know, change. That's ultimately the satisfying thing about a character arc is that they do change, right? You don't want a character arc that stays flat. Interesting, because he's going to take that uh, on next. Most of okay. episode eight is the depiction of an aged Nora meant to show us that time has not smoothed her rough edges. Her body language is stiffer and more brusque. If anything, she's doubled down on many of her key personality characteristics, including a refusal to believe in quote-unquote bullshit. When the sentimentality of the wedding and seeing Kevin again and dancing with him casts a spell over her that threatens to lure into complacency, she rips herself out of that through sheer force of will, because it's not real. This is the same old Nora, nothing's changed, and to say her monologue at the end is a fiction is to say that all the character building done in the series is driven home by the finale uh, was pointless. Hmm. I'm not here to argue with you, man. I'm just, yeah. I'm just uh, reading this to show the breadth of the discussion and the opinion that like two people can have completely opposite reactions, and you can throw the showrunner in there as a third person, and maybe the director as a fourth, and the actor as a fourth, fifth, mm-hmm. and that's that's why I think the finale is ultimately awesome. Any other thoughts? Or should we get on? No, let's keep going. Chris from Charlotte. I clearly see why Leftovers stand side by side with Breaking Bad, slightly above the other great shows of the past 15 years. The other great shows had either excellent supporting cast without a true main character, such as The Wire, Game of Thrones, or a dominant lead with an excellent supporting cast, Sopranos, Mad Men, perhaps Lost. 
At the end of the day, Breaking Bad and The Leftovers both gave equal story building to their two main characters, Jesse and Walt and Nora and Kevin. Each of their stories was intertwined with their partner's arcs. The finale of Breaking Bad doesn't hit home if Jesse was a well-developed minor character, and the same goes for the finale of Leftovers. The difference, I think, lies in the fact that four or five episodes in season one of The Leftovers, did we really expect this? Did we really see Nora becoming the 1B to Kevin's 1A? The greatest scenes of this show ended up being conversations between Nora and Erica, Nora and Matt, Nora and Lori. Nora was allowed to emerge from the others in season one and become one of the greatest characters in television history. The Leftovers, more than all these other shows, including Breaking Bad, had follow-up seasons whose story arcs took such a divergent path from the opening season. If you would have given me the Cliff Notes versions of season two and three right after finishing season one, I would have told you to get the fuck out of here with all that nonsense. The final few episodes of season one and some of the last two seasons took me places I wasn't expecting. The mindfuck known as International Assassin stands alone as maybe the strangest and greatest episode of television I've ever seen. And lastly, Snot Tears. No show has pulled off a snot tear like The Leftovers. From, Jesus, does it ever. From Kevin almost drowning himself with a snot tear while singing Homeward Bound to Nora as she has her last talk with her brother. No CGI snot tears needed with those two memorable characters. <laughs> I'm so glad that they didn't go for the snot tears in the final scene because that was distracting, I have to say. <laughs> uh, that scene between Erica and Nora uh-huh. had a lot of snot tears. And it was a powerful, amazing scene, but I, I got fixated. I couldn't help it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a bittersweet goodbye to the show. Like Kevin, I'm going to take two weeks off the next decade, travel through the Outbacks, and stalk Linda Loffensley comes out of hiding with another amazing, emotionally charged series. P.S. Mm-hmm. I believe Nora. All right. Strong. Strong opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. So someone else asked, and I didn't choose to read this because, you know, whatever, but now I'm curious. Have you, have you actually cried watching The Leftovers? What do you consider crying? A tear rolled down your cheek. Sure, yeah. Like it escaped the confines yeah. of your ocular cavities if, if and, looking, and arrived onto your face. If and you're planted look, a flag. <laughs> if you're looking for a John Hamm ugly cry, no. No. But yes, tears, tears. have escaped All my right. eyes. There has been saline shed. All right. In the name of the leftovers. <laughs> your, your eye lubricant was leaking. It was. All right. Andrew I v. quickly shut off that subroutine, but <laughs> for a moment, it escaped. I see you passed that in season three. It didn't, <laughs> right. didn't quite get you, so well done. Yeah. Well done. Uh, Andrew V., for one thing, I felt very strongly that the show had set up Lori. Okay, this is another thing, Lori, Lori suicide thought. Hmm. Uh, set up Lori to have her have passed away, as many others did. In fact, I'm on record of saying to a coworker who wasn't sure about her death that I'll be mad if she's alive. However, after seeing her, I had to, and I invite others to recontextualize that episode because A, she clearly can no longer help those people, so she stopped trying. And B, yes, Nora's scuba plot did foreshadow suicide while informing us that she was a cer- certified scuba diver. Who is a person who might enjoy scuba diving? A person who gets scuba certified? What is a great place to dive? Australia. Uh, so this is kind of like, uh, we, I, I, I kind of dry pied this guy. Um, but he's got the, that, that was the opinion that I, that I came to, that... Um, a person in Lori's circumstances with the phone call she had and the things she's about to do, unlikely to commit suicide. Um, Just go back to point break, man. (laughs) Point break. And when it comes to all these other interpretations where loss was about watching a man of faith and a man of science react to the events in their world, The Leftovers is more interested in testing the viewer for being a man of faith or man of science. Maybe? What do you think about that statement? Do you think The Leftovers is a litmus test on not so much the characters as the people watching it? 
And, and I think and certainly what value but, is that? I think certainly, but maybe not categorized as like man of science versus man of faith. I think because I I am very much a man of science in the real world, but when you go into a fictional universe, I open the doors a little bit more, you know. Yeah. Um, but certainly, it's questioning like where you land on certain issues. Mm. I think in this fictional reality that they've created. Yeah. All right. Uh, Chris A., quick thought on Nora and her biking all over Australia. This is a callback to the Tom Parada novel. One of the primary coping mechanisms Nora had with her grief was biking for miles nearly every day. Season one touched on this as well, but it was emphasized much more in the book. It's a key component of her character right from the source material. Um, in my opinion, this strengthens the Nora's a lying liar who lies theory. I think she showed, this shows she continues to grieve, but if given the closure of actually knowing what happened to her children, she'd have moved past at least this particular grieving mechanism. That's a strong point. I remember bringing that up in season two. I think that there was a point where, like, Kevin watches her get on a bike and leave in Miracle, and we commented on how that was a throwback to the novel. But um, yeah, I think it also happened at the beginning of this season. Yeah, episode it, one. What What do you think of that? If that if if the book and the show establishes that as a as a grief mechanism, the fact that she's still biking all over Hell's Breakfast and or Hell's Half Acre in Australia is that evidence that she was a liar i mean it is um, i guess it's potential evidence i sure, don't know if it's yeah. persuasive evidence yeah because i mean she's also smoking right yeah to to deal with grief that was obviously a coping mechanism mm-hmm. even though it's a tradition that's stupid sure <laughs> and leads to emphysema uh-huh josiah w asking the important questions if laura is lying which i think she is what does that say about her relationship moving forward can a relationship or even a marriage be a positive thing moving forward when one or more of the partners is lying about a huge thing? Does this lend credence to the thought that Kevin does know she's lying and just doesn't care? Yeah, that's kind of what I think it is. Like, Kevin's done his fair share of lying too, right? Right. And it, and I don't think he like wanted to blow up the relationship. I thought he thinks people wouldn't understand. So I'm hoping what happens of this is they they have further conversations about it right and they come to some understanding of how they feel maybe not like an actual you know this is the timeline of events and here's what really happened but but like they come to some emotional agreement here yeah (laughs) because that's the thing they've always been lacking yeah and that's what i i I made the point last week but i'm not sure if it was in the main part of the feedback um and i know a lot of people don't listen to the feedback and of course i want to make it again in the feedback so who cares (laughs) um i think that Kevin had a fantastic story that Nora couldn't understand and that Nora had lost something in a way that Kevin couldn't understand. Yeah. And since Kevin has gone through this period of like this, you know, being convinced that someone's not alive and the fact that she had never found Nora, that he'd never stopped looking shows Nora that he takes her seriously that 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 he now cannot even take seriously but she can he cannot he can understand what she was going through with her kids and the fact that she's telling Kevin this story um shows that she's at least willing to understand Kevin's kind of crazy ramblings about the things that he claims that he's done right so i thought it was more of a, a signaling of like we're now on even footing than any kind of like starting off on the wrong foot mm-hmm. so uh, yeah, that's what I did too. And yeah, it's a lie in an ideal world, right? You would want if transparency it's a lie, sure. and uh, right. If it's a lie, obviously you, I mean, that's what the yeah, the yeah, yeah. emailer was saying. So y- 
in an ideal relationship, you'd probably want honesty and transparency and stuff like that. But I, I don't know if this will ever be like the perfect relationship. <laughs> you know, there's what is maybe too much baggage. And yeah, what what do you even define that as? So, mm-hmm. I don't know. Kindle P, uh, you mentioned how Nora ends up placing her beads or her sins from the wedding that she took from the goat onto the paper towel holder. When I was watching this episode, this instantly reminded me of the paper towel holder from season one. Nora kept a paper towel holder from the day of the departure with, like, one sheet left on it before she later in the season throws everything away and decides to try to move on. Mm-hmm. That's a good point, and I'd forgotten about that, that she had kept things, like, exactly how they were when her kids left as some kind of coping mechanism, totem to get them to come back, whatever. Um, so I actually like that, you know, unloading her sins onto that thing even more now. Mm-hmm. It's the scape towel. <laughs> Uh, Benjamin S. My take on that would defeat the purpose line um, that Matt said is this. Matt is just, do you remember what we're talking about here? Where Nora says, you can come with me after uh, Matt explains why he's afraid to both die and live. Ah, And he goes, that would defeat the purpose. Yeah, we had no idea what that meant. Um, Matt just finished explaining that he's actually afraid to die and he's afraid of how he'll be remembered. He spent his whole life not being afraid or at least trying not to, using faith as his guide, and now he's finally admitting that despite that, he's afraid. When Nora says, well, screw that, why don't you come with me? He's saying that would defeat the purpose because this leads to death as well. Because Nora and Matt, or at least Matt, was sure that the machine was going to kill her. So he went for it to, uh, so he, if he went for it too, that would defeat the purpose. Hmm. Uh, what do you think of that analysis? Still not quite sure I understand what they're getting at. Okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, I guess, do you believe that Matt thought that machine was going to kill her? Yeah, I think so. So I guess that's the point. Like, mm-hmm. if you if I die now versus, you know, a couple of weeks in cancer, like, it's it's not going to do anything to abate my, my fear and my uh, mixed feelings about moving on to the next, next step. That's it. Okay. William... I, after watching the finale, I wanted to hate it for some reason. I had trouble getting my thoughts together, and I couldn't figure out what it was that it didn't seem right. While I did enjoy the show, I can see that it was the most brilliant and conceive, concede it's mostly brilliant on every level. I don't want to bash it. I just need to convey what's left a sour taste in my mouth after such exceptional work. What I finally decided on was the problem was that the send-off message became, do whatever you need to recover from grief, even if it's based on a lie, which can be considered religion 101. Religion's also based upon community, and all I saw here was people trying to isolate for no explainable reason, which is showing growth from the rest of the series where people lie to themselves and to each other in order to cope and to not face the reality of the situation in order to relate to one another and to heal. Sure, people have been creating lies and fabrications in the name of religion for centuries. It would be unfair to say Christians claim there's a magical place in the afterlife, so it's bullshit to think that there's an earth too. But the difference is, anyone in the real world saying that they went to some magical place for 10 years and that's why they didn't pick up the phone or checked out is not someone able to have any kind of healthy relationship. The other lies, these are not religious fabrications to get people to do something. They are simply attempts of characters to isolate each other. It's taking choices away from others to give or receive help because they would rather be alone. This doesn't sound like much of a hopeful message that has characters changing through the course of the series. Hmm. I... Well, I guess I would say they need a place to start. Mm. Like, th- that's my hope, is that this is the start of something better for them. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I I don't believe that she literally went to this place. And, you know, if it's a lie, it could also be a metaphor um, for what she was actually experiencing. Like, this 10 years in another place might mean 
10 years of grief and agony that she couldn't get over, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of how I view it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. I just realized that I've been, I've been viewing the final episode as very much a Schrodinger's cat where I'm just not opening the box. Like I don't want to think too much about whether Laura's telling the truth or to lie because in my mind, everything about it works better when it's uncertain. So, like, people have these strong re- reactions uh, seem like it's because they're very convinced one way or the other. And, you know, um, we're, I, I think— I mean, convinced I, is an interesting word because I don't know that— I don't know that I'm convinced so much as I just want to believe that. I yeah. mean, which is the what this fucking episode is about, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. the stories you want to tell yourself and that you believe. That I, you want to believe. I think that's right. the story I want to believe is that Nora and Kevin are going to be happy, that Nora— um, is is somehow able to like realize her mistakes, and if not totally explain it to Kevin, at least give him a hint into it that he can use as a foothold in that relationship. And you know, Kevin tried to frame this as a start of a relationship, not as a continuation of a damaged one, which I think yeah is obviously absurd, but it's a good instinct. Like you know, it's been ten years. We're different people, but we still have this chemistry, and we still have this kind of understanding of each other. Let's try again. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, and you, like you said, like if you see it as this starting off that relationship with a lie, whereas I see it as an emotional bid to level with Kevin, right? Uh, because he's already by going on this crazy ass search, he's already kind of gone come to her level on the other thing. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, like I also, I'm not going to guarantee that Nora and Kevin's relationship is super healthy, right? But they're also well in the middle age. And like, you know, what's the worst that can happen at this point? <laughs> how, how badly can, you know, uh, how badly can things go? Yeah. Uh, Sheem has a theory about why Christopher Sunday remembers everything in Kevin's alternate death world. He simply hates water and doesn't drink any. Remember Erica's father, who was Kevin's guide in the International Assassin Hotel, told him that as long as he doesn't drink water, he'll be okay. Mm-hmm. But then he ended up drinking water because he was so thirsty and he forgot everything. I believe Christopher Sunday hated that damn leaky radiator so much, he started to dislike everything about water and never <laughs> touches the stuff, even in death. That's uh-huh. why I remember what his, uh, Kevin's father told him when he's alive. He hates water. I, I got I got no evidence to mount against that attack. I mean, it, it fits with his character. He dances to keep the rain away. That's right. right. Like this Fuck is water. a man who fucking hates water. That's right. He's he a, lives in the middle of goddamn nowhere. He like the mighty on the driest bear, land in the world. Lives totally on dream eucalyptus trees. Right. And he's he's just fine with that. Uh, Andreas. In regards to season one, I don't understand the criticism it receives from many fans. Much like Aaron, I felt this show was custom-made for me. I have suffered from depression for most of my life, and much like season one of True Detective, I found the bleak, gritty realism to ring true to how I feel and felt. I can't remember if it was posited on the show or on your podcast, but one suggestion about the sudden departure was that the ones who departed were unwanted at the moment by their loved ones. Right. Nora being upset at her family right before the departure, Lori with her unwanted baby, etc. This had me in tears as I was watching the season. I'd been coming to grips with my son's severe autism and even revealed to my wife that when my son is at his worst, I regret having him. I was in a very dark place and seeing in particular the elderly couple with their adult son with Down syndrome from season one who had departed, I immediately began to sob. I can imagine having a moment of regretting your family and then all of a sudden they are taken from you and I was heartbroken. The mm-hmm. ritualistic suicide attempt somewhat that Nora did with the bulletproof vest in season one and Kevin with the dry cleaning bags in season three also struck home with me as I've had in my darkest moments attempted similar things to cope with my depression. 
Like I said, this show was made for me. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that you've had all those struggles. I mean, we, we all have. But those seem to be particularly uh, tough issues to deal with. But I feel like one of the things that's valuable about The Leftovers is by showing some of these things that are things that we are uncomfortable to talking about, that maybe it can normalize it somewhat. Like, it's normal to be dealt a bad hand by a combination of life events and genetics and to regret that you're in the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably healthy. What's unhealthy is to say that even that thought makes you a monster. Yeah. And probably, you know, uh, leads to even even a worse spiral of depression and, and self-loathing. So that's why I'm saying, like, I don't even know that this is less important than The Wire because this is shit – and and if you if you don't have to ever think about things like that, then I guess consider yourself lucky. Just like if you've never had to deal with a you know parents are on heroin since the time you were four, and you've had to live off the streets your whole life, like you can be lucky about that. Um, but I don't know. Like some of this stuff does feel important. Sure, I mean it's it's a it's a surprisingly intimate story. Yeah. You know it. It's it encompasses a lot of different versions of grief and a lot of different um, and all kinds of scales, right? Flavors and scales, yeah. yeah. And and yet it always seemed like directly tuned to somebody, yeah. Um, because I think it's such a common experience, yeah. Uh, that I don't know. I mean, this this show is really moving in a lot of ways, yeah. That's I mean, even the hero of the story is a guy who's who is a physical god, extremely charming. Good career, great wife, great family, and still wants to run away. Why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because of trauma from losing his mom at an early age, from not from from deep feelings, seed feelings of of worthlessness. Like who the fuck knows? But like even his problems, which are you know a hill of beans compared to a guy like Andreas or those parents in season one. Yeah, that's we still identified with that and was rooting for him to recover and be healthy and whole and. And not like I mean, I never got an email that was like "fuck Kevin" or "fuck Nora" for having these weird coping mechanisms for dealing with their grief. Like, right? I'm kind of amazed. I'm kind of amazed. I never got anyone that was like that. I think those are probably the people who didn't like the show. Probably. Yeah. They're like, "What the fuck am I watching? I'm out." Yeah. And maybe I mean those people are just lucky to have never had any yeah. grief in their life, um, to never have lost anything. Yet, because it's coming, and I there's all kinds of people. luck. Like you can, you can be lucky that you, you because 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 unless you're trained from a therapist from the time that you're like super healthy uh, to have good coping mechanisms, like you can come up with coping mechanisms that suck, like you know addiction and things like that, or you can come up yeah. with healthy uh, coping mechanisms that are healthy. And it's that that's another layer of luck. Like tragedy is one thing, how you cope with it. Mm-hmm. That's you know, why do some people choose the bottle and some people choose community service? Yeah. I don't know. Do people choose community service better than the people who choose the bottle? I don't think so. Yeah, and some people could look at the show and identify with it uh quite a bit and then have a visceral negative reaction. Like, right. hey, fuck you, I don't I don't like this show. Right. You know, I mean there are so many different reactions yeah. to the same experiences. Yeah. Which is what this show's all about. It's very human. Yep. Steve P., in deciding where the leftovers ranks for me on my all-time great list, it really ends, ends up to coming down to longevity. Although the leftovers had my favorite season of television ever and probably my favorite single episode, Mad Men was able to do it so consistently and for so much longer and barely ever missing a beat. 
For me personally, Mad Men stays numero uno. He also recommends if we like this, we should watch Six Feet Under, which is not the first time I've gotten that recommendation. Hmm. Um, that's an interesting argument. Where does longevity come in on this? It definitely plays a part. I think it's a harder thing to pull off a longer show and keep it satisfying and interesting. Right. Uh, and there are some victims of that that we won't maybe talk about. Sure. But, uh, yeah, I I think that's not unimportant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to change because, like, it's like this gets debated about. Like, I'm seeing this debate with like uh, Michael Jordan and uh, uh, LeBron James. Right. Like, at what point, if like, oh, if, if you want to say that they're approaching equality, or like, you know, they're you, you can never do a one to one comparison. At what point does the fact that LeBron's done it for twice as long right. start to sway him to the greatest of all time talk? And it's like some well, people, oh, but Jordan some people, did it first. That's what I'm saying. Like, and some people won't have on? it. Like, well, yeah. Jordan had all the advances in nutrition and blah right. blah blah and training and growing up and like it, it's the thing. It's like it's just another piece of data and whatever is important to you. Yeah. Like I kind of sympathetic to probably judge on individual moments and peaks rather than like valleys and, and mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, obviously if, if like, you know, the leftover, like, like if, if the Mad Men had half a season's garbage, like longevity wouldn't be, but like doing it at a high level for longer is, yeah, it's harder. It is certainly yeah. harder to not, to, to not run out of that steam. But mm-hmm. Mad Men was a different show about a different thing. They were trying to do a different message and they had a different, objective and and goal in mind like for example mad men doesn't get renewed after season three i that i that show would be half done mm-hmm. because he needed the full decade to really say everything he wanted to say about that particular time period and this particular man yeah whereas i feel like any in the last three seasons lindelof could have gone off and leftover still like Season one, it would have been a much more indie thing. But season two, yeah. I still think after 10 years, people would be talking about what about the leftovers, though, in any kind of top 10, top five conversation. So, yeah. Uh, like I said earlier, I think season two is is way better than season one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if I would have the same affinity for the show if it ended at season one. Mm. But I think if it ended at season two, certainly. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right on that. Like, season one, like, I would always have, like, wow, what a crazy little quirky thing that really spoke to me. Yeah, yeah. But greatest of all time? I don't know. <laughs> right. And I'm I'm also, like, if it had gone out in season two, I don't know. Because I was already, like, I don't know if it's, like, you know, The Wire. and right? But now after mm-hmm. three seasons, it is. So, like, longevity's a part of it. Mm-hmm. Dylan from New York, Albany, New York. Um he has a take on the first season. I love the first season of Leftovers, and I'm also tired of everyone talking about the show at the qualifier for the first season, including Damon Lindelof, apparently. Yeah. It definitely has its problems, um, but the first season shows so well what grief in his rawest form looks like. I work with grieving people all the time, and the misery the show felt in the first season occurs in so many. The five stages of grief is often not what grief looks like, and when it does occur, it happens out of order and in a cyclical fashion. I think the show as a whole does an excellent job of showing the transition grieving people go through season by season. First, unfiltered misery. Second, desperate attempts to move on and feel safe. Third, the quest to make sense of it all. Although these themes are present in every season, I think each season reflects how the characters cycle through these feelings, but progress a little more each time. Uh, The first season is beautiful and necessary to highlight the journey of these characters. I definitely agree with that. Even Lindelof said... I don't see how you can appreciate an episode like Lynn's mm-hmm. without seeing Nora Durst in the first 
first season. Yeah, you can't. Like, it's like it loses almost all of its power. Yep. So you need one without – and you wouldn't have one without the other. Um, yeah, and that cyclical nature of the thing is kind of something we've been talking about with each of these three seasons. You know, they always seem to come to some uh, place of understanding at the end. Right. And then cycle back on themselves. So. Like that that poem I read, the the autobiography in five parts. Like you mm-hmm. get recovery isn't like oh I'm down and now I'm back up again. It's yeah. it's you know you get a little bit better each time. And maybe it took Nora ten years to come to grips with the death of all of her family like yeah. that. But that felt realistic to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom J oh has a hot take here. My thesis statement, more or less, is that this style of television, unexplainable science fiction, is the easiest one to make. Um, it's easier to exploit because it's been exploited in the past, and I'm more sensitive to its trick. Think about Lost for a second. Oh, shit, there's a polar bear in the jungle. That doesn't make sense. This is crazy. Now you have an audience member that feels tense, uneasy, and super locked into what is going to happen next. The problem is, if you never pay it off, it's simply cheating. Sometimes I felt that way about Leftovers. Why can Kevin drown multiple times and keep living? Just cause. How come Kevin and his dad can see each other through a TV? Doesn't matter. You felt uneasy, don't you? We made you feel tense, so we're nailing it. Even things like Kevin acting like he doesn't know Nora feel exploitative of the audience. This feels like Lindelof pulling the strings to create a feeling of confusion and uneasiness more than it feels like organic storytelling. I mean, that's... Isn't that what you want? I... Well, let's let's, let's finish. In shows like these, the story is clearly secondary to creating a feeling. Which leads me to the hypothesis that dramas grounded in more realistic settings are much harder to pull off. Let's look at Better Call Saul for an example. I know nothing about the law and the courtroom paperwork can be boring. However, I feel the full weight of the courtroom confrontation such as Jimmy and Chuck finally squaring off. In fact, I'm more interested in Jimmy's story than Mike, Gus, and Hector. It didn't take any crazy elements or natural editing or unexplained phenomena to be fully invested. Leftovers is certainly the best version of this ambiguous science fiction style, but the style itself leads... To a lot of cheats in the name of creating a feeling. Um, I mean, so I might is, even grant his premise that it's easier. What's well, like? Is it easier but, to do photorealistic painting or impressionist? Right. I mean, just different. <laughs> yeah, like the photorealistic, you do something. If it looks like that thing, then you did a good job. If you're just painting a blue square with a red circle, then. Number one, it's way more open to interpretations, and it's much harder to com- communicate the thing that you want to communicate through just space and color, right? Sure. So is it easier would, or – Well, I would say like from a research perspective, it's probably way easier because like when he, he mentions the courtroom scenes, what if I'm a lawyer? Oh, yeah. What if, what if I know what should happen here? And it doesn't. It doesn't go anything like – lawyers. It, it doesn't go great. Right. It doesn't go anything <laughs> like it should. Uh-huh. That takes you out of it, right? So uh-huh. I think there's a higher degree of difficulty for, like, specifically that sector of people who are involved intimately with the law or whatever topic they're they're talking about. Whereas fantasy stuff, sure, you can make up whatever you want. And as long as it's, it's like, thematically what you're going for, it works, you know? But that's hard, too. Like, like the stuff where Reza Aslan comes in and and – you know, makes a couple tweaks and suggests biblical themes. And then the writers go and research things like scapegoats and like, that's, you know, tapping into things that have been important to society for millennia and, and getting that raw emotion, I don't think is, is easy. Like, like, sure. I agree. And then, and where it all breaks down is like doing the international hotel episode, international assassin hotel episode isn't easy at all. Like none of that mm-hmm. shit, sh- none of that shit should work. And, and I still don't know why exactly it does except for 
you've built this enormous amount of faith and suspension and disbelief in an audience that they're just with you. Yeah. And I don't think that's easy to do at all. Um, whereas you tell a story about, you know, brothers and fighting or, you know, a, a man who loses his job or a man who loses his family or a man who's diagnosed with cancer. Like we all can kind of know what that feels like mm-hmm. dying and going to some weird netherlet, like, <laughs> You know, and getting your dick measured by some fucking scanner, that's that's crazy. I don't so like I said, I, I don't entirely agree, I don't entirely disagree. Um but they are different types of art for sure. Sure. Delois B. Um I've been a fit uh let's see. It's a bit heartbreaking to see the lot leftovers come to an end, not just because I love the show, but because I've anticipated and enjoyed a weekly podcast commentary about each episode. I share a ton of similarities with y'all, so I feel like a kindred spirit. I, too, am a red state liberal, and the struggle is real. I've lived in Oklahoma most of my life and have resided in Oklahoma City for the last several years. Also, I was part of the Jehovah's Witnesses briefly. From wow. ages 5 to 12, my mother took me and my brother to the Kingdom Hall in her hometown of Lawton, Oklahoma. But I have also some differences from you as well. I'm a black woman and an elementary school teacher. What? Race and gender? That's just a... That's... <laughs> don't, that's, that's, that's we're as similar as day and day. Uh... <laughs> In the DeVox article, uh, Lindelof mentioned that he had originally wanted the leftovers to be four 10-episode seasons. He mentions that they are toyed with the Pillar Man episode and one focused on Jill and Michael and how they went from semi-dating to eventually step-siblings that, the, that must have been one hell of an adjustment. To me, both of those ideas seem spectacular and would have no doubt been emotionally resonant and well-crafted. Um, and essentially, because we're running short on time and I still have one thing I want to do, uh, she wants to know if we have any opinions about what are the big kind of like what ifs on this show. Because uh, I know that we've had our big steak dinner and aren't greedy enough to ask for more. The series is complete and unit. But what situations, relationships would you like to explore in depth? What characters deserve to tell their stories? I do think I, I really missed something on Jill. I want to know how she came around mm-hmm. uh, on her mom totally mm-hmm. uh, to where she's you know, calling for reminiscent chats right before her plausible death. Uh, anything else that I wanted to see? Pillar Man? I could see a Pillar Man episode. Pillar Man? It's, it's, it just feels like a one-off, though, thing, right? Yeah. Unless you would tell, like, unless you did, like, a Pillar Man and David Burton two-parter that then somehow tied their story together, because that... Right. There is... There was a bit of that tie that didn't end up going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think of like how many things that maybe a Dean, a Dean episode where it's just a day in the life of a crazy man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, like full time. Cause Kevin, even in season one was only part-time crazy when he went to sleep. Right. Yeah. So like that would have been, that would have kind of been interesting or more senior episodes early. Okay. Like when he was like barking mad, talking to himself crazy, like that would Mm -hmm. have been fun too. Uh, but I'm honestly surprised at how many answers we got to things. Like, I never thought they would address Lori's pregnancy. I never thought that they we would necessarily get uh, what David Burton's whispered into Kevin's ear. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm amazed at how this show has sealed off so many things that uh, Lindelof could have opened up twice as many and still walked away, and nobody, nobody would accuse him of losting the place, you know? Uh-huh. Like... I kind of felt like they were overly generous. And maybe, like you said, that's a reaction to his his experience with loss. He doesn't want to be hounded at conventions. Well, what happened to this? And what happened to that? And <laughs> So anything you want to add to that? Nope. Okay. Let me see. Um, 
here's a take. James in London, I've come to the conclusion that this show serves as a reminder of man's obsession with knowledge and understanding. The rapture is an unexplainable incident. I feel this show is ultimately how about how about ah, excuse me. I feel this show is ultimately about how man struggles with his acceptance of this. I think the leftovers outlines the fragility of the human mind in the face of an unexplainable event. What would your guys take on this idea that the leftovers acts as a reminder for this obsession and understanding and knowledge? Hmm. I'm trying to think of a clever GR pun here for the leftovers as the show. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. You know, half of grief is just not knowing something. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, cause I've, I've said, I don't think I've said it on this season, but I have said many times over the course of this podcast life that I often wondered as a thought experiment whenever someone, because it seems like every five or so years someone preaches that there's a particular date because of some weird-ass thing they wrote about golden apples in the Bible mm. that the end is going to come and they know. And I always wondered, like, what would happen if, like, some kind of worldwide famine or an asteroid strike or some kind of crazy solar phenomenon we didn't quite understand would happen in occurrence with that? And I kind of feel like we would lose our fucking minds. Like, there would be just this mass hysteria to to get right with God and, like, all of the things that, like, and I don't know whether I would be on that side of the divide, but there's a lot of... It seems to me that there's a lot of people, like just like in the in the past, or more often people are religious than not because that's the way they're raised. I feel like now we're starting to see generations of secular people, not because they put any kind of intellectual rigor or discipline into it, but that's mm. just the, that's just a self evident fact, right? But if they were tested in that, they would go run home to mama, so to speak. I don't have any mm. evidence on that. I hope we never do see any kind of global calamity Mm -hmm. that coincides with some madman's ravings but i do feel like that there is a fragility with it with all this yeah um we need millennia probably of this kind of stability and peace and secularism to kind of like not and i don't even know if that would do it because it does seem like you know religion came about because of like i'm speaking strictly as an atheist but religion came about of strictly biological processes right like what do you mean? There is unless you believe in God, then mankind came up with religion because of things oh, okay. in their yeah, own yeah. experience, and so it's like I don't know why sure. in the future that would ever stop being true. Hmm. Um, so yeah, well we know. I mean, it also came about because of sheer ignorance. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, we know a lot more about how things work now. Granted, we don't know everything, right? Um, and if something like the sudden departure happens it becomes a big what the hell. Right. Uh, and it, I think you're right. It does it does throw some doubt onto um, maybe some of the stuff we think we know or think we understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it would become more of a question. I, I think I'd be on, you know, the, the non-believer side of that debate. I would say, okay, something clearly happened here, but what happened? Why mm-hmm. did it happen? How did it happen? Like, let's look at, you know, let's try and study it as opposed to just jumping to a conclusion. <laughs> Yeah, I just know that like what it's like to argue with a true believer on anything that they're like emotionally charged about. Oh yeah, and how yeah. futile and like in a world where like you're the one person trying to call call for calm and like a, you know you're the one out of a hundred trying to call for calm and everybody else is like you know how you, yeah and it's not just like. I feel like in a situation where we're talking about some global calamity, it's not like oh well this guy just has a different belief. There'd also be tinged with. 
what are you doing trying to get God to be even harder on us? Like your disbelief, like you, you, mm-hmm. you're the one person in the tribe of Israel that's caused us to be smote with fucking boils or whatever, poisonous snakes. You know, it's like right. you, not only are you being a heretic, but you're endangering us all. Um, that kind of shit is is scary, like the Salem witch sure. trials shit, you know. Um, Matthew B. wanted to know, I said that, I guess last episode, that I felt like the nun is one of the Rosetta Stones of the episode, but I never finished my thought because, stop me if you've heard this before, we got sidetracked and talking about submarine dicks and shit. Uh-huh. Um, he wanted to know, what did I mean by that? Because the nun is the biggest confusion for me. I Just out of curiosity, what did you think about that? You, so if, without me explaining it, do you have a take on why the nun is the key to understanding the episode or one of the keys? Um, I, I thought it had to do, you know, with the, this is one of the reasons that I think Nora was lying because uh-huh. she's pointing out the hypocrisy in Nora here or the lie that Nora is telling and, and sort of buying into, you know, she's, um, in the same way that the nun was telling the lie about the guy that was in her, her bedroom. Right. Um, I, I thought it had something to do with the lie, but I don't remember. And exactly. saying it, that was a better story, and the fact yeah. that she's bald faced lying, and we know she's lying, we have all the information we need to assess that she's lying. So then, when we see a similar situation at the end of the episode, so I say it's right. Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone, if you don't know, is a stone that had three different languages on it. One which was previously trans- untranslatable. So the scientists yeah. were able to, or I guess archaeologists. We're then able to use that and then go and s- decipher all these other things, like um, mm. you know, hieroglyphically and whatnot. So I feel like if you want to go with the Nora's lines, then you've got two parallel situations. One character we know beyond a shadow of a doubt is lying, and then later in the episode when we see that same form of storytelling and we don't have the proof, you can believe Nora, but then you are ignoring the, the, the piece, the evidence that you were given earlier in the episode. So yeah. that's that's what I meant by it. Um, finally, a guy named Harry Pubes came oh, up with okay. a bald yeah. move Mad Libs, Matt Libs for us. All right. Uh, and I thought we could play it on real time and see, because this is the last yeah, thing we're going to do. do it. This is the last thing we're going to do, uh, and it'll probably take us a while to do it. And It's maybe, the last thing Nora and Matt did. It's the last thing that we should do Maybe it'll be here. worth it. Maybe it won't. But yeah. I need from you some, I'm going to give you some words and I need, <laughs> I need you to, to fill them in. <laughs> oh, You've not seen this, right? Okay. You've not uh, seen no, this? No, I haven't okay. seen this email. No. Uh, an exclamation. Shit. Okay. Uh, body part. Thumb. Okay. Adjective. Uh, remind me again <laughs> what an adjective is. Something that describes usually ends in uh, L. Sweaty. Oh, sweaty. Okay. Verb. Uh, Past tense. Hooked. Okay, uh, another adverb. No, adjective is description. A- adverb is the one that's like L-Y, like okay. slowly. Um, peacefully. All right. Uh, n- uh, uh, a plural noun. Scuba divers. <laughs> All right. Uh, animal. Goat. Okay. Uh, adjective? Uh, happy. Okay. Noun? Building. I'm not even seeing if this is good or not. I'm <laughs> okay. just putting them in. Verb? Uh, walk. Okay. 
Adjective. It's the last one. Uh, stupid. <laughs> That's fitting. All right, here we go. Harry Pubes. Hey, shit. I know you guys don't like to read your praise on air, but I thought this might pull your thumb enough to give it a try. I've listened to your Leftovers podcast since the early episode, and it truly changed the whole experience. This sweaty show was able to conjure up all sorts of feels inside me and also forced my <laughs> brain to work overtime in order to take it all in. I couldn't have hooked this show as peacefully as I did without you two scuba divers guiding me through it. <laughs> it wouldn't have been the same without Jim's skepticism and all the goat holes that Aaron took us down. <laughs> oh, no. Your understanding of the Bible and all of its happy really added a level of depth to the show that I feel other non-podcast viewers sadly missed out on. Shame on anyone who binge-watches this show. This show is to be sipped slowly like a fine wine, and Bald Move is the building that you walk in between each sip. So cheers to you, stupid gents, for a job well done. Thanks for everything. Awesome. That is that. That is how I propose all all praise is sent to our podcast from, from here on forth. Yeah. Um, you know, this has been a remarkable show, mm-hmm. and um, I can't wait to see what Lindelof uh, gets up to next. Yeah. Like, he's gone from a place of extreme skepticism to, like, I mean, I kind of even see now as lost as being, like, his first draft of where he eventually took the leftovers. And I'm curious to see if his next work is going to further the study of, like, you know, human grief and coping mechanisms or whether he'll finally feel like he nailed it and he can move on Mm -hmm. to something else. But, man, the guy has a knack of telling really interesting stories out of mundane characters to have bizarre, crazy experiences, but that feels realistic, right? Yeah. I think his relationships are extremely emotionally charged. Um, and, and they don't feel artificially. So yeah, that's the thing that really hooks me with his character. And that's the thing, like being a human, like, um, an 89 year old woman emailed me and I didn't get to read her, her, her feedback. Although I think I touched on it and I just coincidentally, had a really long conversation with my 89-year-old grandfather over Memorial Day. And it's like, you just, these two people, like, you can generalize, like, they've lived through a Great Depression, World War, Space Age, Internet Age, and, like, they've had all these fascinating experiences, and everyone has had that, right? Like, there's not very many people that just live boring, average, ordinary lives, and I feel like that's why Damon Lindelof succeeds because he throws in these crazy circumstances, but it kind of feels right. Mm-hmm. Like you feel like you've known a person that's been there or you could see yourself going down that path if, if, if you had to, the right nudges and, and, and shove. So mm-hmm. I'm all, I, I kind of hope he keeps Parada around. Um, I would love to see them as a creative uh, duo in the future, but what regardless, either one of them, I'm locked into whatever they're doing next. Yeah. Um, I hope that you continue our uh, you know, TV journey with us because we're right now wrapping up Better Call Saul and The Leftovers, of course. Uh, won't be very long until July. Like We're a month away from Game of Thrones penultimate season airing. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots more great stuff coming out. Um, the Pike this year, I'm looking forward, especially or hopefully early next year, Westworld coming back. Another HBO great show. Yep. Um, but yeah, go to uh, follow us. Uh, follow us at baldmove.com. If you like this, maybe you like other stuff we do. We'll hate for the, the, to say goodbye forever. Um, but if 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 it is the end, then um, I don't know. What do you say to people who are never going to talk to you again? Bye. Shalom. Bye. <laughs> Fuck off. Beat it then. Uh, <laughs> never liked you anyway. 
Uh, no, no. <laughs> who he'd knows? Say, it's he'd all say, the fullness of human he'd expression. Say, be well, he say. Yeah, be warm and well fed. Yeah, as they say in the Bible. Uh, anyway, I do appreciate everybody. That's that's. This has been my favorite bald move thing that I've ever done. Um, by a pretty like I like maybe if True Detective had gotten three solid seasons, I'd have felt mm. the same way. But like, yeah. this is really a pleasure to watch. And to experience difference uh, of, of of opinions, and to do really explore the topics, and be rewarded to the depth at which, and it's been incredibly rewarding. Um, and thanks to everybody who listened and spread the word. I know that uh, uh, a lot of people on leftover or the leftover subreddit and other places always recommended us as far as the uh, a great podcast to listen to, and tons of ratings, reviews, and iTunes, and felt really well supported. Um, and it's been awesome. And the community who, you know, helped out with the discussions in places that maybe we lacked, you know, yeah. um, all the feedback that came in it, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it was some of the most well-informed and well thought out of all the, all the shows we do. Which made uh-huh. it really tough to edit it as an editor. Yeah. It, was, it was always really, really tough. And I tried this, this email, this, some of this feedback in the last few weeks took me as long as game of Thrones, even though I wasn't. As much, I spent a lot more time responding to people personally because, like, if you got a really good take, um, I felt like it was shitty to just, you know, not even acknowledge it. And I I couldn't do that with everybody because I did eventually run out of time. But, like, I I, I tried to do that because I I did appreciate it so much. And it was a cut above the average as far as as feedback we receive on other shows. So, again, thanks. Um, I don't. I, I don't want this to end, but it's got to. Yep. So we'll see you around the internet, people. Uh, until then, I'm Aaron, and I'm Jim. See you later. Dame Furry. This is the story of a great English lady. She is a knight. She's been knighted by the queen. A knight. Damn. That's that's the dame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, she's got this distinguished career. She's like Judy, Judy Dinch and the posh English world is rocked to discover that she gets it on anonymously with other people who wear fursuits and she herself wears a fursuit under her armor. Oh, <laughs> is this medieval or is no, this no, modern, this is modern times? Okay. This is like tabloid. Cause so like, what is it? Ta- what do you is there a um can you ge- be disnighted? Can you have your dameship uh removed just because you are caught in some kind of sex game? She's not she she's she's unmarried. Uh-huh. She's not she's not cheating on anyone. This is just something that she does with other consenting adults. Right. Is the weirdness of the furry aspect of this uh, is this a, is this a light is like is this the first of a, a numerous uh, is this the furry Philadelphia is this the, like the first in the long line of fiction that's going to have uh, us uh, fur normative people question about why we why we need jerk dismiss these people's uh, sexual identity yeah I feel like this is a British court drama right like she's they're trying to bring her up on charges mm. for being a furry. It's the queen versus Dame Furry, right? And she's wanting and to de de knight her, and she's right. fighting it in the the. She's going before the the court of lords. Yeah, because there's really nothing wrong with it. It's just <laughs> making up all these politi- <laughs> the court of lords, yeah, British political things. Yeah, right. there's a court of lords. It's got to be. Yeah, the parliamentary. They got panel. the court of commons where Joe Schmo goes. Like if you get in a bar fight, and you got the court of lords when they're trying to take your knighthood away. For sure. 
Uh, they're trying to demote you d- 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 from from Earl from Duke to Earl or from Baron to Duke. Now Duke's I think the highest. So would it be kind of like a few good men sort of thing, where you've got maybe the Queen as the Jack Nicholson character? Yeah, it's just it's just a since the, I I want this film to show me what it feels like to have what what you you, you what you what's what's his. I mean, can I say it's not a healthy display of sexuality? Like, I, I want them to actually make... I, I actually want to see what it feels like to be shamed for no good reason based on the things you like to do in the privacy of your bedroom. Mm-hmm. Like, as it's done so many times. Like, you know, film and, and right. theater has changed my mind on so many different things. Like, furries is one thing I've said. Like, you know, I, I think that might be the thing that I'm the old man that just doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. Like that's where I'm going to be the racist old person. Like I have to, like I have to recognize furries. I don't. I don't think I can do that. I want this. I want. I want Dame Furry to change my mind. She's elegant. She's accomplished. She's talented. She's intelligent. She's she's sensitive, and she likes to fuck in a fursuit. <laughs> okay. What what? Where's the like ongoing drama here? What what format is this? Is it a movie? Is it a series is it it's a movie it's a movie a movie okay this is this is uh this is uh is a movie that's gonna come out in oscar season this is not like a summer blockbuster this is a quiet spotlight type film okay that is going to be this uh portrayal of furry culture that's going to turn people's minds around they're gonna be like you know what people uh, are not that bad in fact there's something to be celebrated okay so maybe she gets knighted like She's celebrating. She's watching. She's like, wildly the first third of the movie. It just should be it's like a, a celebration. Bi- yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's glorious. Like, She's just, loving life. Sure. Well, yeah. she actually. Here's how it comes out. So she, she has the nighting ceremony, right? And she mm-hmm. goes out and she's just partying with her friends. And then, uh, she gets a little too, a little too wasted. And then at some point during the night, she blacks out. She wakes up the next day, on her picture or on her phone are pictures of herself in her furry costume. Like, maybe Ooh. the furry costume is laying, you know, by the side of the bed here. And this is the first we've... Uh, oh, what? so so at the gala celebration of a night, there, she notices in, like, one of the smaller alcoves, there's a furry convention. Oh, okay. And, like, a bead of sweat breaks out on her forehead. Right. And she knows, And, like, like during the nighting ceremony, and, you can kind of hear the rave music right. from the other room. <laughs> and, the other wing. And, and, the and you can palace. see, like, her, her, her friends, like, in the upper crust, they're, like, as they're passing this, they're like, oh, my God, those... But these nighting like, ceremonies these, happen these furry in... furry people. They Ugh. happen in Buckingham Palace, right? But it's... So there's, like, a wing of Buckingham nah, Palace nah, that's nah, being utilized nah, as a the rave? Queen, the Queen just rents at some hotel <laughs> downtown... London. I can't imagine that's true. <laughs> but that would imply that this rave, this furry rave is happening in a wing of Buckingham Palace, which or, I think is or, hilarious. Or maybe it, it's, uh, you know, the, U- it's, it's the UK, it's, it's post-Brexit, they're having some financial trouble, and the Queen is actually renting out wings of okay. Buckingham Palace. There you go. You know, there's a couple well-heeled furries that have put this together, and yeah. her all her friends are like, you know, like Kat, and she, she knows secretly she's one of them, and that's how okay. we find out. Because the right. next morning she comes to, and, and you can see her like during the nighting ceremony, looking at the throne, yeah, looking over at the furry sign, and she's looking sh- back at the throne. Sure, you yeah. can see it. The and gears the next are day, turning. You can see the chamber, but why is she ashamed? Like she's not doing anything wrong, man. She's not ashamed, but she no, she, sees... she is. It's because societies make her felt that way. Well, right. So then it comes out, right? Somebody hacks her phone. Somebody gets the photos. We have a flashback where her mom walks in on her first, you know, like like browsing, browsing, uh-huh. for, looking at Fox pictures on the internet. Yep. Looking at the, watching the Lion King mm-hmm. in in uh, inappropriate ways. Yep. She's you know 
I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how this all this looks. <laughs> she just she's constantly listening to the Lion King soundtrack. I just feel like for like that um, stuff like you know the Fox and the Hound and Robin Hood with the Fox and Disney and Lion King. That's kind of like furry porn, right? Like anthrop- so. anthropomorph, slightly anthropomorphized animals having romances and whatnot. Sonic like the Hedgehog. That's where it's at. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's like you know uh, Sonic and Tails. He's already mostly anthropomorphized. Sure. And they they have a they have a gay free relationship. Yep. Okay. I uh, that that seems that seems more than enough. <laughs> okay. 